Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be giving the year-ahead forecast for the entire year of 2023. Joining me today are astrologers Austin Kopic, Lisa Scheim, and Diana Rose Harper. Welcome, the three of you. Thank you. Yeah, it's Hi. great to be here. Awesome. I'm excited about this. This is our big yearly forecast episode where we look at the major transits and the things coming up in the year ahead and give sort of a big picture overview of what's coming up over the next 12 months. So we're going to start by talking for the first 80 minutes or so about the major big picture transits and shifts that are happening next year. And then after that, we're going to break down each of the years quarter by each of the year quarter by quarter, looking at each month in detail. Uh, does that sound like a good plan to all of you? Sounds good. All right, let's jump right into it. So here is the planetary movements calendar for those watching the video version that shows where the planets will start at the beginning of the year and where they will end up by the end of the year. And here's some of the major transits that we're going to be talking about over the course of this episode. So at the very top of the year, Mars is finishing its retrograde period in Gemini, and it's going to station direct on January 12th. And then it's going to depart from the sign of Gemini and pretty much end that long transit on March 25th. During the first three months of the year, Saturn is going to be in the process of leaving Aquarius, and it's going to move into the sign of Pisces for the next three years, starting on March 7th. This is going to begin a sign-based conjunction with the planet Neptune that's going to culminate just a few years from now once Saturn and Neptune make it into Aries. Then also in March, Pluto is going to move into Aquarius, and it's going to dip into that sign just for a few months between March 23rd and June 11th, but this is going to be a preview of a longer-term 20-year transit as Pluto is going to be moving through Aquarius over the next two decades. After that, the first five months of the year features Jupiter transiting through Aries until May 16th when Jupiter moves into Taurus, where it will spend the rest of the year in that sign. This is going to begin a sign-based conjunction between the planets Jupiter and Uranus, which is going to be one of the more notable aspects of both this year and next year. Then over the summer, Venus is going to go retrograde in Leo from July 22nd through September 3rd. And then finally, the other major astrological signature of this year is we have eclipses shifting from the Taurus-Scorpio axis to the Aries-Libra axis with the nodes changing signs in July. So those are the major transits that are we're going to be talking about this year that we're going to get into over the next hour or so. Um, I want to start by talking about some recent news stories because it seems like there's a lot of like major things happening in technology right now, especially with the later part of Saturn and Aquarius taking place right now in December, as well as things that are kind of moving us and heading us in the direction of that big shift of Pluto into Aquarius. So um, it's been a month since we recorded our last forecast episode. And some of the things that I was noticing, for example, is um, we had that big AI-generated art uh, sort of fiasco or like instance where in early December when Venus squared Neptune, um, a lot of people were posting pictures from this app called Lenzo where you feed it a bunch of photos and then um, it spits out like different artistic images of yourself that have just been generated by AI basically. Um, did all of you see that on social media? Yeah. Oh yeah. Let Lenza and also my heritage, which I thought was mm -hmm. really interesting. That combination of uh, 
super fantastical, but then also pseudo historical. Super, super interesting. What was the My Heritage one, or what did that do? That one is um, My Heritage. I, I don't really like. I have friends who use it for like ancestry reasons, like genealogical reasons. Mm-hmm. And I know that with their AI, it wasn't so much the use of like contemporary artists work that was like scrubbed into their AI. And instead they were using um, like, there were, there were several of them that were using like photographs, like actual old photographs. And then I don't know what else went into it, but the idea was that the resulting images were you in like different time periods, like uh, Ottoman princess or Viking or Celtic warrior or 1920s flapper, like that kind of thing. Okay, that's funny. Pioneer, yeah, the Star- pioneer starving, ones were weird. <laughs> starving dust bowl farmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's really funny because one of the ones that um, Lenza gave me was like train conductor, I think, or that's what it was going for. <laughs> so I fed it like ten of my own photos. I didn't have like a lot of selfies to feed it, so it didn't have a lot to work with. But it still generated like a surprising amount of like funny. surprisingly realistic photos uh so there's one of them for those watching the video version kind of a world war ii conscript (laughs) yeah Yeah. it kept trying to give me hair and also make me look like really buff and like uh like a superhero or something yeah there was a lot of uh, body manipulation towards uh certain kinds of physical ideals like Mm -hmm. um there were I was a victim of this of being given um anime anime sized chest when that is not a thing I have in real life. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I well, this one's my favorite because I don't know. Like I I, I just I like I don't know if I can say that by myself, but I definitely would like for that that picture. Um yeah, so it had a lot of like positive and negative things. And just looking at the transits, um for that time, I was just struck by the fact that Venus was squaring Neptune from Sagittarius during that whole period. So let me back mm-hmm. it up to, mm-hmm. it was like right around this time when Venus was about 21, 20, around December 3rd or so. Mm-hmm. That was when everybody was like posting these on social media. And it was such an interesting contrast because on the one hand, you had that and there was just this explosion of you know, Venus, Neptune of these images where they weren't real photos. It was just being generated by a computer of these. And in many instances, it was making people look particularly good or or artistic or or other things like that and putting them in like fantasy scenarios. Well, there's a, you know, a term we might use for a Venus, Neptune configuration natally or by transit is that there's a tendency to romanticize things. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, like, they're, they're, they're romanticized images. Mm-hmm. Right. That was also while Neptune was stationing, which I right, think exactly. is additionally interesting because part of the, part of what a lot of people um, were talking about, especially artists themselves, is how AI obscures the work of the artist. And so it's both the fog of AI, but also this surgent, like this resurgence, maybe not resurgence, just like an initial surge more loudly than before of artists being like, "Eh, no, 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 no. These fantasy images aren't actually coming out of the ether. They are coming out of like people like these, these algorithms, which are designed by humans scrubbing other people's work. 
Right. right. So it, the two issues that it raised was was one, a bunch of artists suddenly becoming like fearful about their livelihood and like people no longer needing to pay for their labor, but instead having AI be able to do something almost just as good for you know, almost paying almost nothing for it. So like that, that was one legitimate issue that came up that I think is going to be a recurring theme with AI um, is the cost of labor dropping to near zero, but also in some ways replacing humans. But then the second one was that people were saying that it was actually ripping off art styles from specific artists that it had learned that the AI had learned from. And then it was just like replicating those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, it, it, and that's something that's already a problem in the art world, right? Mm -hmm. Is literally someone biting your style, right? Like, you know, somebody has to establish a style of, you know, whether it's a uh, use of color and line or, you know, um, cadence or, you know, whatever it is. Um, like comedians talk about that, about somebody who literally just um, uh, mimics a, a more successful comedian's delivery system. And so the AI is basically really good at stealing other people's style. But it, uh, as uh, I believe Diana made the point, not not generating new styles, just um um ripping them ripping off existing ones very effectively mm -hmm. yeah, yeah although which then raised the issue because then one of the issues today for example with the internet in commentary is fair use and the concept of fair use is that you can commentate or take something if it's a derivative work that you can like derive something as long as they create something that's new, even if it's based or a spin-off of something else. And that's kind of what a lot of like YouTube streamers base their entire model around is that you can like, you know, play show yourself watching somebody else's video if you're doing commentary on it or something like that, as long as because it makes it a derivative work. So there's all sorts of interesting conflicts then over that that are, are kind of new in terms of whether that's legal or not legal or morally okay or, or not morally okay. It's it's reminding me of how Neptune's um I think his discovery was associated with like also the discovery of aniline dyes, which expanded like artistry and also was poisonous. And so part of the process of being able to incorporate the like Neptunian advance is how do we do this without it actually being toxic? Mm -hmm. Right. Lisa. One of the things, yeah, one of the things I was um, noticing is, you know, we're talking about, we will be talking about for several years, I'm sure, you know, how, how we deal with these issues um, mm -hmm. and ownership and so forth. One of the interesting things I saw that popped up um, around the same time this year was this project called From Numbers to Names, and it was using AI and photography to put names to people in Holocaust pictures for their family members to like find them again. And it was a really interesting mm -hmm. reverse kind of thing where on the one hand, when we're looking at the ones we were just talking about, it's kind of like blurring the boundaries of like individual ownership of art and things like that. Um, in this, it was kind of like the reverse of like the sort of things coming out of the Neptunian fog and taking form. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that was really interesting to me. And it's also just an interesting example of how all of these things can be used kind of for like for good or for evil or for something, you know, shades of gray, of course, which I'm sure we'll have a lot of. But um, yeah, anyway, it made me think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. For sure. Um, and it was also the Lenza and other things that happened in 
early December, around the time of Neptune Stationing Direct, which Neptune stationed on December 3rd, so it's perfect lineup. Um, it was also an interesting contrast compared to, you know, Venus was squaring Neptune then, but about a month earlier in early November, Mars squared Neptune. And that's when you had all of those um, fake accounts all over Twitter um, of different companies and stuff. And it just created this whole fa fiasco of like fake accounts that were sometimes saying things that were like offensive or were um, causing harm to the company or other things like that. With all of that, it was really interesting contrast. Mm -hmm. Right. I was like, insulin's going to be free on my fake Eli Lilly account. Yeah. And then, of course, their stock tanked. And it was right. pretty funny, funny to yeah. watch, even though it was obviously going to be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or there was like a Nintendo character like Mario, like faking a fake Nintendo account. And it was like Mario, like giving people the middle finger uh, <laughs> was one of the other images of that time from Mars Square Neptune. Yeah. It was high, high key goblin mode. <laughs> yeah. So interesting contrasts. Um, all right, so moving on and related to this, another major thing that happened was on November 30th, and this is around the time that Mercury was square Neptune, there was the release of this new AI chatbot called ChatGPT, where um, this major AI company created a way that you could interact with their AI through conversation. And what was really striking about it is it's actually really good at not just having conversations, but it also generates things like you can tell it to make things so for example one of the things that i told it to make was an opening for this astrology podcast episode which i almost like read at the beginning but i decided just to do my normal opening but here's the opening for example when i gave it the prompt of um, write an introduction to an astrology podcast episode where we forecast the year ahead and within minutes or seconds it generated this it said Welcome to our astrology podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking ahead at the year ahead and making predictions based on the positions of the planets and the stars. Astrology is an ancient practice that uses the movements and positions of celestial bodies to understand and predict events here on Earth. It's a fascinating field that has intrigued people for thousands of years, and in this episode, we will be using astrology to shed some light on what we can expect in the year ahead. So sit back, relax, and join us as we explore the world of astrology and make some predictions for the year ahead. Is that is that not both funny and eerie, or or is it just me? I I mean, it just kind of sounds like every introduction to every astrology podcast. I I'm it's not quite it's not creative enough to be creeping me out. It just sounds like yeah. an average of you know a uh, thousand podcasts that got scraped. Right, it it's does, obviously it in sound, development. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound artful. Like it sounds like here's your fifth grade writing assignment. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's yeah. Yeah. Well, I was struck it by kind of how sounds fast. Like, oh, go ahead. I was struck by how fast AI is advancing because to me that's really impressive. And as I started playing with it and going more and more, I realized one of the things about it is um, so even though it's it's taking in because it has a data set, it collected a bunch of data from a bunch of sources from the internet and books and transcripts of podcasts and all sorts of things but it's it's primarily a language learning model and language is its primary focus and and ability and what's interesting is that through through combing the internet one of the things i realized while i was chatting with it is that one of the languages it picked up was astrology so i started asking it to delineate some placements and it actually does a pretty good job of even delineating astrological placements in a birth chart so, for example, here was one of them. 
I said, what does it mean when Saturn is conjunct Neptune in a birth chart? And it says, when Saturn is conjunct Neptune in a birth chart, it means that these two planets were located in the same sign and at the same degree of that sign at the time of the person's birth. This can have a number of different effects on a person's personality and life path, depending on the specific positions of the planets and other aspects in the chart. Saturn is associated with structure, discipline, and responsibility, while Neptune is associated with intuition, spirituality, and creativity. When these planets are in conjunction, it can indicate a struggle between the desire for stability and structure, Saturn, and the need for flexibility and open-mindedness, Neptune. This person may feel torn between their desire to follow their dreams and the need to be practical and responsible. The conjunction of Saturn and Neptune can also indicate a deep spiritual connection and a strong intuitive sense. This person may be drawn to exploring spiritual matters and may be highly attuned to their inner guidance. However, they may also struggle with self-doubt and lack of clarity about their direction in life. Overall, the conjunction of Saturn and Neptune in a birth chart can indicate a complex and multifaceted personality with a need to balance the demands of the material world with a desire for spiritual fulfillment. So I'm sorry, but that's really impressive, honestly. And I went through and gave it like other delineations for like transits or multi-planet combinations, and it actually does a pretty good job. It still it still fails in some areas, so it's obviously still developing. But if this is just the start, it, it just we're way further ahead than I realized that we were. And it's so the way that this is going to affect the world, it's not just going to affect like artists or people who can code because you can also tell it to code a website and it'll just spit out like code for a whole website. Um, but it turns out that it's also going to impact astrology and astrologers at the same time, the development and emergence of AI in the future as we move from the Saturn and Aquarius time period of the past three years into the next 20 years of Pluto and Aquarius. I mean, it makes me think of a couple of things. I mean, one is, is it scanning books and the same issue with like copyright and art, right? Um, because you didn't, then it, yeah, it's just like blurring ownership and it's like, you don't get individual ownership. Um, but two, but you hold, know. Hold on. And, and that was yeah. Austin's point earlier, but to, to counter that point, every astrologer, their primary um, basis when they start is their primary teachers and especially For their sure. first primary teacher, their first two primary teachers. Every first few year astrology student does the exact same thing, which is they pretty much repeat pretty closely their primary sources and primary teachers mm -hmm. in the same way. So to me, the idea mm -hmm. that it's like repurposing stuff from its sources is not really much of a counterpoint because that's pretty much what humans do as well, especially in the early stages of their learning and development. Yeah, for sure. Not not really going on that angle. I mean, it's partly like, do you want sales of your book, right? Um, or is it just going to become obsolete? Um, but it's also like, I could see this, at least at the current state of development, it's going to replace, or it could easily replace like reports, like astrology mm -hmm. written reports, but that's all it's spitting out. It's still not. And it's interesting with some of, because I played around with it a little too. And with some of the answers, it would actually say at the end of their answer, um, but this is complex and it depends on other placements in the chart. And so you should really talk to an experienced astrologer, which I totally appreciated, right? <laughs> yeah, that it says that in the delineations. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there, I don't know, there's so much stuff about this, but so what we're getting into and the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the themes that has come up really strongly basically in the past month as we're going through the tail end of Saturn and Aquarius, um, where some of the fruits of all the research that's been happening sort of behind the scenes over the past two or three years as Saturn's been moving through Aquarius, and as we've been having the Saturn return of the internet and the World Wide Web 
from back in the early 90s um, is just we're starting to see the next level in AI starting to emerge, and it's going to start impacting the world in some significant ways. And it does eventually start getting into questions in the long term when we're talking about in future decades as this advances and moves further about um, you know questions that would at what point are they able to develop like general intelligence in AI, or are we ever able to get to the point where? Um, it can start doing even more complex things. And, and what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is part of, you know, going into the Pluto and Aquarius era. And it was re really interesting looking back at the prior Pluto and Aquarius transit and how many technological advancements happened during that time, how many inventions and patents and things that actually were, um, you know, people were facing the same things. Like, this is going to change my entire way of making my living, right? Or it has the potential to, and all the struggles around that. So um, yeah, we're, we're right. kind of going into that repetition. Yeah. And it's, I think the, the time frame of Pluto and Aquarius is important to remember because we just get a taste of it this year. It's like yes. two, a little, a little over two months. Um, so again, just, just the tip this year, but we're looking at basically a 20 year arc, which begins this year, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not that like when we look uh, at the last time, which was the last uh, two decades of the 18th or the 18th century, 19th century, sorry, the 18th, nah, the eight, the last two decades of the 18th century, sorry. Um, you know, it, quite a bit happened if we look at that as, you know, as a block, or if we go back before that, um, we actually had windmills becoming a big thing uh, in a previous iteration of uh, Pluto and Aquarius. And, but last time you have, like, you have the Luddite resistance to that wave of the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and Which, so, it, yeah, you know, it's not when we're talking about this AI stuff, I think it's it's just important to remember that we're talking about what we can see at the cusp of Pluto and Aquarius now that has 20 years to develop. Yeah. Right. And, and what's important about that, though, is you've got to, you've always got to pay attention to what starts happening at the beginning of ingresses, because oftentimes that's a preview of the larger themes that are going to really emerge in full force by the end of that transit, because mm -hmm. um, I think of. Um, Bitcoin, like the Bitcoin white paper was published just before Pluto went into uh, Capricorn. And then the very first Bitcoin was mined and created. And we have the birth chart for Bitcoin right after Pluto went into Capricorn. And in the like founding documents for Bitcoin, the founder refers to the re recent financial disaster that happened with the economy and how the banks were being bailed out as part of his motivation for creating Bitcoin. So sometimes it's these little things that happen at the beginning of major transits like Pluto ingresses that become larger things, as we've seen, for example, with Bitcoin over the past uh, past decade. Yeah. yeah and another... Go ahead, Diana. Okay. One thing that I also think is really interesting is, you know, for example, like with the Luddite movement, like, yeah, part of it was like, we're losing some portion of the artistry of our livelihood, but a lot of it was the um, worker conditions that were a yes. problem. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm thinking about this like dip of Pluto into Aquarius, like Saturn leaving uh, Aquarius and entering Pisces. Pluto's retrograde station this year is like within minutes of the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction. Um, Jupiter and Saturn have their opening sextile starting like, this year and then mm -hmm. um jupiter being co-present with uranus and uranus and taurus being something that's seen a lot of um 
like strikes and workers' rights stuff. And so there's something about um, the combination of these factors speaking about not just advances in technology, but how is it that we make advances in technology continue to respect humanity, whether that's human creativity or just literal physical human bodies. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that um, I'm very astrologer good interested to see how how that unfolds mm -hmm. yeah there was a there was a study done some years ago that was cited in the economist um and consistently for the last 200 plus years um the the sort of total gains in efficiency of production that were achieved by you know various waves of industrial revolution generally took about 30 years aka one saturn cycle to actually be distributed fairly like mm -hmm. so far like the the track record is that um all of the gains get hoovered up for decades mm -hmm. um whenever there's a, a new technology yeah mm -hmm. So, and, and, you know, we've been going through Saturn and Aquarius for the past three years. This is the tail end of it, uh, between now and March. So we're getting, um, the full emergence of some stuff that was being like tested out and, and doing a lot of trial and error over the past three years. But then with Pluto, we have to remember that one of the primary things that Pluto does is it takes small things and it just blows them up into, into big things like an atom you know, being split and and exploding into like a full mushroom cloud or what have you. That's kind of what we're looking at here. And I think AI is going to be one of the most important things uh, that will develop um, in the next 20 years as we transition into this sort of machine intelligence era and um, start talking about some of the different ways that that impacts society and questions like, because like the Turing test, for example, if you can talk to put a human who talks to a computer, um, and if they can tell the difference between a computer and a human, that's already kind of been passed. And we're almost we're already getting past that point. And now we're moving into um, an era at some point where we have questions of like, um, super intelligence and the potential for super intelligence and machines um, being reached. And if that happens, then just the pace of things like scientific advancement is going to like explode and could be happening a thousand times faster than at other times in history so that you just get this acceleration of a lot of things. Um, one thing related to that that was also recently in the news that we should talk about is um, the U.S. just announced a few days ago that um, a fusion reaction was achieved that had a net energy uh, output and gain for the first time uh, in human history, basically, which is a huge turning point in terms of fusion research, because it means that um, we could be headed towards like fusion being a viable uh, manner of generating energy, which is going to generate not just a ton of energy, but it's also going to do so cleanly with much less environmental impact, which, which would actually be huge in terms of climate change and, and other things like that. Yeah. And the, what's interesting about that is that um, the time frame given basically is Pluto in Aquarius. Um, the like super ambitious goal is to have a prototype facility built within 10 years. But if we're looking at like any sort of 
um, adoption at scale, we're, you know, we're looking at 20 years. Um, and so again, it fits into the time frame very nicely. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, and, and that happened, that announcement came on December 13th. So I think that's another one of those Saturn and Aquarius things. But then as Pluto moves into Aquarius, it's just going to magnify some of that stuff. But that's one of the most probably honestly, like, subtle stories that have happened in the news recently, but one of the most positive or optimistic things, just because it's happening at a point where climate change is getting to that tipping point. Um, but with something like that, it could allow for the phasing out of fossil fuels at the same time that we see the rise and of and the adoption of electronic electric cars um, and some of the major car companies actually starting to really churn those out. Yeah. One thing that's really I don't I don't want to dwell too much on December of 2022. Um, but one thing that's just very interesting is what we saw over the last month was a lot of um, should we say fake tech things exposed. But then we also saw um, you know what was dreamed and uh, deemed entirely uh, entirely functional for the waking world, right? Um, things that like, like the, like the net positive, uh, fusion generation was a real thing. It was not, um, the metaverse. It was not NFTs, right? Um, we have this sort of sorting that, uh, that we just got done with that we expected, um, with, uh, the Mars, Neptune and a few other things. Yeah, that's a really good point. There was a sorting of that because the NFT thing came and went and then just kind of died uh i don't know if that's going to come back at some point but right now it's like kind of regarded as a joke um there's been other news stuff there's been some more negative i know lisa you mentioned one about san francisco right they um the san francisco board of supervisors at the end of november <clears throat> very unexpectedly approved the use of robots that were armed and <laughs> for police and um there was a big outcry, unsurprisingly. And so like within a week, early December, they were like, oh, no, actually, we'll reverse that. But they remanded it back to a committee to keep discussing it. So like it's something that could still come up. Now, it's interesting because, you know, that feels very Pluto and Aquarius, right? It's like killer robots and you know, the fears around technology of what, what could happen when technology sort of uh, gets ahead of humanity, right? Um, and also, how are we societally deciding to use new technologies? Um yeah, and one of the things that I thought was really funny about that was, um, I don't know if you've seen Mary Mary Shelley's, what was her name? Mary Shelley uh, wrote Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Have you seen her yeah. chart? She um, she had Pluto and Aquarius conjunct the midheaven. Mm. And it was oh. like, <laughs> right? It's perfect. And so it's like fan sort of fearful fantasies of non-human things that go out and kill people. Anyway, so um, it just reminded me of that. Um yeah. It's like the murderous, yeah. uh, the murderous uncanny valley. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's very Terminator franchise. Um, and one of, you know, so Pluto does, uh, real things as it moves through the signs, but it also like shapes and warps and focuses the imagine, like the collective imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things you see really clearly is the sight of the hor of horror, um, moving mm -hmm. with Pluto's sign change, like very quickly. Pluto in 
with Pluto in Scorpio, like <clears throat> early 80s to uh, mid late 90s, um, it's the serial killer, like the sex murderer, the Dahmer, the John Wayne Gacy. It was all about like the, like, uh, should we say, the intimate, hidden, you know, murderous individual. Then in the, <clears throat> the latter portion of the 90s, up until uh what 2008 you have pluto in sagittarius and then it becomes one you have the you have columbine early on in that like first big school shooter first big school shooting um and then you also have 9 11 and so the the site of the the figure of horror becomes very sagittarian right they're wielding a firearm a bow you know a bow is a non or is a is in a sense uh uh like the precursor the precursor to the firearm the murder at a distance thing they're you know they're going all over the place the terrorists are over there they're gonna what are they, we're gonna fight them over there so they don't fight so we don't have to fight them here that was like the bush administration thing um and then when Pluto moved into Capricorn 2008-2009, the, you know, the site of horror becomes the structure that we live in and which is um, Capricorn, the laws, as well as the past, right? We like, instead of the, you know, instead of Pluto and Scorpio, like secret sex murders hiding uh, over there, it's like, oh no, the, the, the structure that we live inside of is the site of horror, um, you know, with literal like structural horror. And so we're looking at the movement um, also of that imaginal um, focus of horror with Pluto and Aquarius to the future, to imagine, you know, to, you know, the, the, the story of, of the terrible future, right? The, mm -hmm. I think dystopia is not even a good, it, it, it overlaps with dystopia. It's but, like techno dystopia. Uh, yeah, it's right? very, it's very like, oh my God, are we headed in this direction? Does this mean this? Right. Yeah. And that's there are like real dangers but then there's also like chris said uh like chris quoted alan um the like taking a tiny thing and making a big fucking deal out of it um we also do that with terror like fear does that as well mm -hmm. yeah and i mean sometimes those fears are well grounded i mean pluto and scorpio was the aids epidemic and then fears surrounding sex um as a result of that and, you know, that was the era I think a lot of us grew up in and, and just being urged growing up right off the bat to practice safe sex or or risk, you know, something that at the time could be a death sentence or Pluto and Sagittarius was like um, fear of religious extremism and terrorism or Pluto and Capricorn became the fear of the financial collapse and the uncertainty surrounding our financial situation in the world. And now we move into Pluto and Aquarius and the potential for like a fear of technology. Mm -hmm. um, like for example, Ukraine the other day just um, apparently issued instructions to Russian soldiers for how to surrender to drones, which is kind of an interesting like news story connected with similarly like, like the San, Fr San Francisco killer drones or mm -hmm. killer robots story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's also interesting just to kind of continue with what you began with, you know, it's like the real thing that happened with Pluto and Scorpio was the AIDS epidemic. The real thing that happened with Pluto and Sagittarius, it was like, there's two, two things. One guns got easier to get. And there was a very legitimate bolstering of certain kinds of religious extremism, including here in the United States with things that maybe I shouldn't talk about too much on the podcast, but just in terms of a specific form of religious nationalism. Um, mm. And then with Pluto and Capricorn, we did very much see a 
separate, like a, like a growing gap between how much money people earned and how much money or how much power that money actually had to buy things. Like even just thinking about the housing market situation right now is just. Totally. And the wealth wealth inequality gap. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also the uncovering of like what's rotten, right? What's Mm -hmm. underneath. And so with Pluto and Sag, it was, um, uh, the, the priest sex scandals, right? Mm-hmm. That was all like a big story when uh, Pluto went into Sag. Pluto and Capricorn, there's been a fair amount of like the rock comes from the top or like sort of, you know, people who are helping run the country are actually in on a coup type of thing. Um, so, you know, it's always about like discovering sort of the, the sordid underbelly of whatever that sign is. Yeah. Yeah. I think another one that's going to be prominent to bring up one other recent news story that I think is going to be important. Um, I remember how, remember the Jupiter Saturn conjunction in Aquarius in December of 2020, one of the major technological things or like sort of breakthroughs that happened at that time was that the vaccines for COVID were released at that point. And we had the first public releasing of essentially like the mRNA vaccines, which is like a new thing and fundamentally what that was was like a piece of technology and advancements in technology that were being used to alter sort of human biology in a sense or at least to have an effect on our physical biology in some way i think fundamentally you can describe it that way whether you're pro vaccine or, or anti vaccine you know whatever um one of the ways that that came up recently was um elon musk's company Neuralink announced a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago that it was going to begin, I think, human trials within six months of its Neuralink um, implant, which is like a brain implant that they showed a video of it, how it, how it sh- allowed um, monkeys to like control a cursor and type on a screen and issue instructions using only their mind and using brain waves. So one of the like Pluto and Aquarius things and the, the changes and advancements in technology is probably going to also be bioengineering and using technology in order to both interface between humans and, and technology, but also in order to change things about our body in different ways. Um, oh, I- you yeah, know, some of which will be probably good, and some of which will probably be not so good. Yeah, I mean, we're there. Um, um, there are trials being done for injectable gene editing, mm-hmm. right? Like that's um, <laughs> like that. That has a that 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 has a number of um, we can we can we can imagine a thousand different versions of what that means. Right. Well, and there was just a teenager just recently that um, was cured of cancer. At least she's in remission for several months so far. Who It was from gene editing. It was called something like base editing. And it's a new technology that was just um, sort of understood as of six years ago. But this is the first actual person that it's happened to. There's so many things. And this is why we're dwelling this long, right, on recent tech um, news stories is because this is really the segue into like more Aquarius. And this is also Saturn getting very close to leaving its shadow period. Like it will do leave in late January. Um, it'll go back to where it was in June, 2022, and then keep going. Um, but you know, there's, I saw another interesting story recently about how, you know, it's the good and the bad of these technological things. And ultimately, it's just repeated stories of like, how are we using this as humanity, right? Um, where they're impl- people have already had like implantable 
eyes for people who couldn't see and things like that. And there's like this horrible story recently about how what happens when like these are venture tech ups, you know, um, startup companies, what happens when they decide it's not profitable enough and they move on to something else? And there's these things left in your body that don't have updates, right? This is already a thing. Um, right. We're, we're no longer supporting scale. that product. Or, yeah, We're no, no longer supporting real. that product. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what's happened already. So, you know, it's... Um, or, or the subscription price has like increased. Right, right. Keep, <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a really crazy story. Like people are like, well, I'm an engineer. Let me figure out how to like change this battery. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, because it's not being updated. So, you know, there's I mean, a, these are the already things that are side, happening. though, is like paraplegics and people that can't you know, move being given the ability to do that again. So there's like positive probably mm -hmm. implications of that technology, but there's going to be good and bad things as with yeah. everything. There are positives kind of about it for sure. And it's just really about like, you know, any of these transits, I mean, I don't know how you all fall on determinism, but it's like, there's a lot of potentials there. And it really just keeps coming down to like, how are we collectively deciding to use this? How are we deciding what we reward and what we punish all of those right. things? It's like cast irons can be used to cook breakfast and they can also be used to bash people's heads in. But what becomes the norm of how you use the tool? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's also going to be at some point like generational gaps and generational divides, because if something like needing a brain implant, for example, in order to interface and do things quicker, because one of the things you can do is you can type faster, you can interface with computers faster if you have, if you bypass the limitations of your hands and how fast they can move or type. Um, there's going to be at some point generational choices where some, you know, probably older generations like ours might have to have a choice. And and if there's, and will many will have like reluctance to that, or some might go with it, but it will then create generational gaps in the same way that computers did. And for example, mm -hmm. if we remember like our grandparents and some of them, you know, may have adopted computers and others may not, but then it created a generational barrier in terms of the ability to continue to keep up with current trends to a certain extent. Yeah. To mm -hmm. even work. Right. So, right. Um, you know, I remember the point at which I adopted a smartphone because it became an obligation for my office job. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so there is something about um, like personal choice when it comes to certain forms of um, ubiquitizing of technological advances, mm -hmm. um, you know, where it's like, if that's something you don't want to do, then you're essentially being opted out of certain facets of society. Yeah. And I think that's where these big generational transits, like when you get to, for example, like the Pluto and Scorpio generation is now going to enter into our Pluto square for the first mm -hmm. time. That's when you run into when society is like going one way or something and you run into those tensions sometimes um, that that divide generations. Mm hmm. Well, and it's also about economic stratification because I feel like Aquarius is also has at least some to do with how do we organize society and how do we think about society. Um, and I know I used to work at um, the public library and would help everyone who didn't have internet at home, couldn't afford it, you know, and there was a real um, technological divide just based on economic stratification. So mm -hmm. I can yeah. see that continuing to be a question with technological advances. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. So. Uh, being the resident Aquarius rising with Uranus on the midheaven, I could keep talking about the whole this whole tech thing for like the next three hours. However, I want to check in on the other 
most important transits of the year with our resident Pisces, which is uh, especially the Saturn and Pisces transit that's going to begin a long co-presence and build up to a conjunction between Saturn and Neptune. Austin, as a resident Pisces, I wanted to get your get your take on on Saturn and Pisces. What do we what are we in for? Give me the give it to me straight. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, I'm yeah. Saturn and Pisces is what I'm most excited about this year. Um, so it's really important like theoretically, but not personally. I think it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. okay. I, I checked my transits as well, and like what happened last time, and damage was done, but um, I, I can live with it. Um, so one thing that's really important about thinking about Saturn and Pisces is that it it's it's the first Saturn sign after Saturn in both its rulerships, right? So you always have you have this. Uh, it's the only time that Saturn's in its own rulership. It does it for two signs in a row, right? So basically, since 2018, we've been in Saturn in a Saturn rule sign and um if you go back through through history saturn in saturn town is always very serious business as you would expect like big uh big world changing things happen and the world is very serious right we have um the late 80s to early 90s rearranged everything um not quite as intense but actually pretty intense especially if you didn't live in the u.s um late 50s early 60s um very intense rearrangement um and then certainly uh the late 20s through early 20s another huge rearrangement it's always just like so serious um and i, I don't i don't i don't mean to mock the seriousness it really is <laughs> there really are serious world-changing events um and then when seven the, the, the energy of those two is just like Capricorn is a dry sign and Aquarius is like a cold sign. So now we're moving into like a water sign, which is wet and has some depth to it. Yeah. And what you see every time is that there's this sort of culture, there's this moment where the imagination is called in by Saturn to like rethink what's happened, right? To re-envision the world, to re-envision stories. And so you get just these like epic landmark works of imagination and literature and entertainment every single time you do Saturn and Pisces. Um, like really quick, um, in the 30s, you have um <clears throat> you have The Hobbit being published. Um, you also have um, not all of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, but the uh, the ones that are um, the, the uh, should we say like uh, what are considered like his best works are then, and these are both worlds that people still live in and draw on. Um, and then in the mid '60s, you got a, a pile of things. One of them is Dune, which is again it's a, it's a it's a it's a imaginal space people still live in. The first book in the Game of Thrones series was published in the mid '90s during. Uh, Saturn in uh in Pisces. Um and then what else do you have during the 90s that speaks to right now um is you have uh video games that you know are and this is sort of the tech connecting part. Uh you have the first game uh in the world of Warcraft Warcraft games which became, you know, the first um completely addictive <laughs> you know fake universe well i don't know if there's everquest but it was you know a huge thing you also have the first game in the elder scrolls series which right now is skyrim uh, which is um probably the most popular completely immersive sandbox game ever you have the first pokemon game um and the list literally goes on and on and on and on um but like this is a real moment or Pi saturn and pisces is a real moment for um the imaginal and for thinking about things in the imaginal 
imaginal, either one, retreating to the imaginal to understand the world better, or retreating to the uh, to the imaginal to get away from the like the nonstop grimness. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can retreat as a meditative retreat, or you can retreat like I'm running away. Um, but Saturn Pisces is very consistent about this. I so love that. that that's a quick version. Pisces always has the escapist tendencies is like one of the Pisces things, which can be a good thing or a, or a bad thing. But there's something about Saturn's participation with it, about making it constructive. Like, how do you construct out of your escape place and mm. create an escape place for others? Like, I think that's the through line of like that I'm at least perceiving with the things that you're sharing, Austin, is like all of these creations endure because the world building is world so building. good. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. The key it's actually building. building, you know, it's like 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 building something that's accessible to other people, I think, as part of it too. You can like insert yourself into these stories and walk around in them versus just seeing a world that you you feel like you don't get to enter. Right. Like even thinking about, especially the video game component and then mm -hmm. how Dune, it's like without Dune, we don't have Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Right. Like there, there's something extraordinarily foundational about those sorts of worlds and then what that facilitates for others. Yeah. And there, you know, it, it, they really, there really is that dual quality because you can do escapism with Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is also a way of thinking more clearly about certain moral issues and difficult mm -hmm. decisions. Oh, there's something, sorry, <laughs> this just like hit me. Um, there's this really excellent book that I got a few years ago that I think was probably published during the 50s, 60s Saturn in Pisces, but it's called The Individuated Hobbit. And so something about the psychological application of the imaginal and how that also facilitates a comprehension of the structures of being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I'm, really cool. So, yeah, the, the, the bad news um, is that Saturn and Pisces isn't very good for managing the world. Um, when you look at like ongoing problems that are happening in the world to get going during the double Saturn years, um, they don't really get fixed during Saturn and Pisces. It's, um, you know, you have less like, how should you say, like, um, uh, you have less of that, like, um, death claw Saturn control energy, um, which is good if you're feeling its talons dig into your skin. Um, but you also just have less control. And so one, you know, one example is um, for Saturn Pisces last time is Russia in the mid nineties, right? This is the Yeltsin years. Um, the president has like a 2% approval rating showing up publicly drunk, like the transition um, uh, from the USSR into modern Russia is pretty much going disastrously. Like that's the Saturn and Pisces lack of control um, or in, in, in the mid sixties, um, you know, like, again, maybe in some ways, it's a good thing to have that lack of control. I think in some ways, that's where where the imagining comes from. But as much as people sort of romanticize the mid 60s in the United States, you also have the mid 60s in China, which is the cultural revolution where shit is completely out of hand. Um, and so it's a more creative um, period, but it's also more chaotic it's just not you know we're coming out of like heavily rule bound um a, a heavily rule bound period of time and as that relaxes um it's not you know it's not always for the best things kind of go in all directions mm -hmm.
Yeah. Um, I know I was looking through my Saturn and Pisces files for different examples. And one of the things that did come up sometimes frequently, um, cause Saturn is sometimes the something that we struggle with in our birth chart. And I know sometimes like substance issues or, or, or just that tendency towards escapism can be pronounced sometimes natally. Um, but there were sometimes really good examples of people overcoming that. Like, um, one of my favorite, for example, um, of, of somebody that overcame his substance uh, abuse issues was Robert Downey Jr., who has not just Saturn and Pisces, but also Jupiter and Taurus, which is, you know, the exact thing that we're going to be having coming up here. So somebody that, you know, he was an actor and he was famous in the 90s, but then he was really struggling with um, substance abuse issues. But then, and he almost, he started getting in trouble with the law and it seemed like he was somebody who whose career was going to be thrown away entirely. Um, but then he was able to turn it around and he was given a second chance and he got like the Iron Man movie and then became the highest paid actor in Hollywood and was able to really pull things together. Um, or, you know, so sometimes you've got that scenario, but then other times you have scenarios like, um, um, a, a not great one was like Charlie Sheen with Saturn and Pisces in the 10th house in the night chart. And he was somebody that got really dragged down by some of those issues. Mm. There's actually a lot of, um, drug news, uh, during Saturn and Pisces I've noticed. Um, my actually favorite Saturn and Pisces example, which actually also has Jupiter and Taurus, like we're having in the second half of 2023, is um, Dr. Albert Hoffman, who uh, was the chemist who accidentally discovered that LSD was uh, hallucinogenic. And I thought that was perfect, right? Because there's also this question, he actually thought, he maintained throughout his life that this was like a spiritual good, that this was like good for humanity if used properly. And it was sort of a mind expanding to like sort of greater worlds. Um, and then, of course, other people kind of, you know, had trouble with it. And that's why it started getting regulated at his uh, Saturn return in the mid-60s. It got really popular in the mid-60s culturally, but simultaneously, uh, the U.S. government at least was like cracking down on it. And so, the laboratory that he worked for like stopped manufacturing it, stopped shipping it. Um, so, you have like this interesting sort of um, double, you know, dual thing going on where it's like it's simultaneously the culmination of that work, but it's also crackdowns on it. Mm -hmm. And then in the mid-90s, the... Uh, the first group that worked on um, medical marijuana to get it as a citizen um, ballot question in California, that was all during 95, 96. Uh, it was actually on the ballot slightly after that, but all the work was done like during Saturn and Pisces. So there's like interesting uh, drug news I've noticed. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that whole Jupiter and Taurus sextile to Saturn and Pisces, which we will have the second half of 2023, like he had, because he... He said he had, uh, Dr. Albert Hoffman, he said he had sort of mystical experiences as a child with regard to plants. And that, mm -hmm. that's perfect, right? Um, and so, what we're, they were trying to synthesize is the active chemical components of plants. That's what he was yeah. doing. Um, he did, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say he did it with some other um, psychedelics as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, I wouldn't be surprised if this uh, run of Saturn and Pisces features an uptick in both um, the research and application of medicinal mushrooms, like psychoactive mm -hmm. mushrooms, because that's research that's already happening. Mm -hmm. um, and 
especially like I know that um, MDMA assisted psychotherapy is also already happening and mm-hmm. is especially um, useful for um, like combat veterans and like addressing certain forms of trauma. Um, so that seems yeah, I, and very I think apt. Hundred percent. I they they actually hold, they they've held a national conference for that in Ashland, like twenty minutes away from where I am. Um, that's mm-hmm. been the you know um, the the ground zero. But um, that also speaks to something that Saturn's time with Neptune is going to do, mm-hmm. which is it's going to lock in some of the things that Neptune in Pisces has been working on since 2012, and it's right. also going to just crush to dust some of the other ones. It's you know Saturn does this. Saturn judges whether you get to be real or whether something gets to be part of the real, and it's either gets the stamp of approval so it's locked in like legally for example uh or you know the you know the the structure can withstand time or it's just like crushed to dust get out of here that was a fantasy mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so so something we're talking about here so we're talking about saturn and pisces but um for all of us as soon as saturn goes into pisces it's also then co-present in the same sign as Neptune, which is essentially the same as like a sign-based conjunction, and it begins the build-up to the exact conjunction with Neptune, which is going to take place around 2025 and 2026, and that conjunction doesn't go exact until Saturn and Neptune can join in at zero degrees of Aries in February of 2026. Um, however, uh, that's one of the things as we go through this episode talking about Saturn and Pisces is that we're also talking effectively about the, the beginning of a Saturn-Neptune conjunction as well. Right. Mm, yeah, and that lasts through 2028, mm. basically, that co-presence. Right, until Saturn departs from Aries and moves into Taurus. Yeah. What's additionally interesting, like this just... I just noticed this is that Saturn-Neptune conjunction in early Aries is where Jupiter and Uranus last met. Mm. around the Arab mm. Spring. Mm-hmm. So right. that's a an earmark to see what happens in the future. But yeah. Okay. I still think about and still remember when we were doing the forecast episodes back in the um, summer of 2015, in the tw- yeah 2015 timeframe, uh, when the last time that Saturn was squaring Neptune. Um, and one of the big things that became popular that summer when that square was going exact, I remember because we talked about it a bunch and laughed about it was uh, Pokemon Go. And that is one of the first like widely adopted sort of like augmented reality games where people were like running around parks, like, you know, catching imaginary digital animals um, that they could only see through their phone. And this sort of blending, this blurring of the lines between what is real and what is uh, not real. Right. Pokemon, which is going to be having its Saturn return during Saturn and Pisces. A few nice. just quick Saturn returns. Um, PlayStation, uh, Saturn and Pisces. Uh, the company Amazon, also mm-hmm. going to be having its Saturn return, as well mm-hmm. as um, as well as well uh, Fox News. Mm-hmm. And for the nerds out there, the Shin Megami Tensei franchise, also Saturn and Pisces. Interesting. That's interesting about Fox News, because that was the other big thing that came up when Saturn was squaring Neptune last time was the major keyword that year became um, fake news, which was originally something that was to de- was used to describe 
um, news stories that were being circulated through social media on the internet in order to influence politics that were not real stories, but people didn't see that they were fake and they were still circulating them on Facebook and things like that. And it was influencing things like the presidential election at the time in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, no. one final set of return, Dolly the sheep. I don't think sheep lived that long, <laughs> no. but the yeah, Dolly the first cloned uh, beast. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there was um, one Saturn square before the fake news piece, the Saturn Neptune opposition. Um, I don't know how many of you remember who are listening, Stephen Colbert's um, truthiness, but the first show that he sort of coined that word on, it was Saturn Neptune opposition with Mercury coming to square both. Um, so Saturn Neptune things, it's all, you know, it makes me, uh, grown a little bit that we're going to be in such a long (laughs) co-presence because, well, it's good for some things. It's good for imagination. Um, you know, I feel like it's already been with Neptune going through Pisces for this sort of long, long, um, stretch. And yeah, there's just always been these questions lately of like, how do you know what's true? How do you know what's not true? And I feel like there's a lot of questions about, um, are you seeing through a consensus reality or are you participating in an artifice without knowing that you are doing so? There's so much around that, right? Societally. And I don't, I feel like that's just going to continue to be a theme. Yeah, right. I mean, all of sure. the, the technological trends that um, we talked about earlier, those are going to make it easier to see through things. And, you know, are you seeing through one thing into, you know, are, are you seeing through one veil into another veil that happens to be a different color, but is also a veil? Right. An equally right. pierceable piece of fabric. I like that you use the word uh, color there because I was talking to my friend Nick Diggin Best last night and he pointed out, uh, a very interesting thing that happened in the mid-1960s when Saturn was in Pisces, that there was something called the color revolution in television, where in the short span of a few years, especially in 1965 and 1966, all of the major television networks in the U.S. made the push to switch to color programming, with NBC being switched to 100% color programming by the end of 1966. So that's an interesting, again, like a metaphorical example sometimes of what Saturn and Pisces brings. And initially there were like obstacles because it was hard for the networks to like, you know, switch from black and white TV shows where they could get away with certain things like using black wires in order to hide things that they were like rigging up for special effects. And all of a sudden they had to like figure out how to do that without it being seen when they switched to color. So there were challenges and obstacles that came up in the process, but still the end result was a very Piscean type thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's good for, like I was saying, it's good for art. Mm-hmm. May not, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll see about the rest of society, but um, <laughs> about well, the trains running on time or the justice right? system or whatever. But it's, you know, it's good for the stories. The stories get more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Toy Story or Toy Story was released by Pixar. Um, launching the whole computer animation revolution on November 19th, 1995, which is also Saturn in Pisces. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, did you want to say something, Lisa? Just um, one of my other favorite Saturn and Pisces stories that I found was um, Rachel Carson. And this kind of speaks to like, um, you know, how, how it could be good or not good for society. Rachel Carson, I don't know if you all know who she is, but she, she was a 
a marine biologist, environmentalist, wrote Silent Spring um, that became the environment movement in, in large part um, after that. And she had Saturn in Pisces. And what I loved about that is she was talking about, again, problems with pesticides is like problems with chemicals is, is, is an issue with Saturn in Pisces, but we're working with chemicals in some way. But she, uh, part of how that took off is because the beginning of her book, she wrote it um, in prose. She wrote it as like an imagine this, right? Imagine a world in which this is no longer true and this in which this problem is terrible, you know, and it's because of the pesticides. And, um, but one of the things I liked about that, because obviously there's the literal piece of like um, problems with chemicals, but it was in addition to that imagine this part, which is how it got through, like some real important things can get through if you kind of um, aim them at storytelling, right, during Saturn and Pisces. But the other thing I really liked about it is, you know, with Aquarius, we're going to have, you know, Pluto going back to Capricorn, then Aquarius briefly. It's all kind of dry. It's all kind of serious. Um, Saturn and Pisces was, her message was that everything was connected, right? Mm -hmm. The whole natural world and us, we were all connected. It's a very Piscean thing. And I thought that was a really beautiful use of Saturn and Pisces. Um, and it turns out then later, um, it, the first uh, successful trial against DDT happened at her Saturn return. She was no longer alive, but, um, and that turned into uh, the EPA eventually. So, um, there's some good things about that um, if you kind of aim it in good directions. What I love about that is how that's such an excellent example of like the, the Neptunian or Jupiterian Pisces is like, yeah, we're all one man. And Saturn's right. like, no, actually, Literally. like <laughs> like the chemicals that are being used to grow your food are right. killing the birds and everything, which is also going to then kill your food because there aren't right. going to be any pollinators. Right. Like the very tangible, like death level interconnection. Right. <laughs> right. The poetic, like, yeah. oh, no, yeah, exactly. Dude. We yeah, are all, we are all one, but you're killing us. Right. Yeah. yeah. We're all right. one and your actions are killing you as well as everybody you know. Right. Okay. right. That's, that's nice. That's but, nice. <laughs> but it's, the, but, you know, the upshot was like, that it was semi-successful. I mean, yes, we still have lots of problems with chemicals and pesticides, but um, it was semi-successful in getting through to people about our interconnection, which feels like a really constructive use of that Saturn in Pisces. Mm -hmm. There's something about the way art and story sticks with people way more mm -hmm. uh, profoundly than facts do. Exactly. Exactly. I was um, rereading Richard Harness's Cosmos and Psyche last night where he um like bizarrely and glaringly like doesn't have a chapter on saturn neptune but he does later in the book like treat it very briefly but it's like a really powerful treatment that he just like crams a bunch of stuff into like a few several pages but he was bringing up another part that i think is going to be relevant to us which is tensions between ideals hopes and beliefs versus har harsh realities um, as well as intensified secular skepticism and tension with religiosity um, he also talks about a widespread sense of discontent and loss of faith pervading the social and political atmosphere. And one of the things that came up that I discovered last night, because he mentioned them separately, but I just happened to notice that they were born on the same day, was apparently um, Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln were born on the exact same day, both with a Saturn-Neptune conjunction in Sagittarius. And I thought that was really brilliant. I mean, with Darwin, that's so important because of you know the theory of evolution and him him proposing that and then all of the 
um, the, the tensions between scientific and religious communities as a result of that, about the implications of evolution and whether that's true or not true and everything else. And then um, with Abraham Lincoln and everything that he ended up doing in terms of the country politically and everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting with both of those figures is that both of them as individuals, but then also the consequences of their beliefs when misapplied has created harm. Mm. Right. Like social Darwinism, like applying like mm. evolutionary theory to things that aren't about species changing over time. Right. Um, right. You know, or with some of Lincoln's beliefs, um, like even though he was a, an emancipator, he was also a racist. Mm. Um, and uh, like under his purview, there was like the most significant mass slaughter of indigenous people here in North America. Yeah, and you can have right. Neptune, Neptune camouflaging malefic Saturnian activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have, and some of the, the history of the Saturn Neptune conjunctions, uh, sometimes, sometimes what you see is, um, if Neptune is dreams, Saturn is, Saturn can be, um, something being worn out. Um, you know, uh, like extreme old age where it just doesn't function anymore. And you see people giving up on an old dream that is not, um, not inspiring anybody, not doing any good. Um, you know, the, 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 the famous example, um, with Saturn Neptune is the fall of the Soviet, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, which is the Saturn Neptune conjunction in Capricorn, which was late 88 to early 91. Um, and if you, read about the culture in the Soviet Union at the time. There was, oh, there's a name for it, um, but it was, people were just kind of giving lip service to the like, yeah, we live in a worker's utopia, I know. Um, you know, where when they had to, and then privately, everybody's like, this is fucking bullshit. Um, and we, we really can't talk about Saturn-Neptune without looking at Russian history, because it just moves perfectly with Saturn-Neptune. You know, there, there are certain um, certain civilizations, certain countries just have uh, astrological signatures that they, that you, f- you can find most of the landmarks. Um, and I don't want to overly dwell on it, but it's very clear that uh, Russia is approaching another one of these landmark moments. You know, in a sense, there, there's mm, is there any is there any going back from the events of this year? Not really. Um, and so last time we had the the Soviet collapse, the 88 to 91, the time before that, 51 to 53, uh, Saturn, Neptune and Libra, we had the, the, the death of Stalin and the death of Stalin uh, began a, a very serious reversal of a number of uh, the policies that had characterized the Soviet Union for decades was de-Stalinization. The Saturn-Neptune conjunction before that was the Russian Revolution. The Saturn-Neptune conjunction before that was the assassination of Alexander II, who was known as Alexander the Emancipator. Um, because uh, there was massive, um, uh, he oversaw a massive sort of progressive shift in Russian politics or in Russian legislation at the time. And then he was assassinated. And then that reversed, just uh, that reversed. And there was sort of like a, a contra progress, or, or I don't think they called themselves the retrogressives, but very uh, like the next czar, the next couple decades were very retrogressive. And so, you know, just going back through the last four, you either have a, a serious shift in the definition of you know what the country um, is, or you uh, you know with the Russian Revolution and the collapse of the Soviet Union, or you have a shift in leaders that then reverses the direction 
um, of the country for decades to come, right? And so, you know, we we can't talk about Saturn, Neptune, and look at the news and not be like, okay, so we're going into another one of those periods for Russia. Right, for sure. And here's the chart for November 9th, 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell. And this was like just after, just days after the third Saturn Neptune, the third and final exact Saturn Neptune conjunction that would occur that year uh, in 1989. So, and which is just itself symbolically, literally like Saturn, a wall uh, crumbling and like falling down, which is Neptune. Mm hmm. I think with both Saturn in Pisces and Saturn-Neptune co-present for so long, a real issue for many people at least will be where do you place your faith and what do you do with your faith or your ideals when it runs up against disappointment? Mm -hmm. And does it make you dig deeper and have a stronger, more realistic faith in whatever you place it in? Um, or does it just demolish your ideals and you go into nihilism? Um, that's I've. It seems like when I was looking through examples, um, both of events and people, that seemed to be an issue. Certainly not everyone's going to deal with tragedy, right? I'm not going to say that, you know, with Saturn and Pisces, but there were a fair number of people who have Saturn and Pisces, and it seemed to deal in their chart with, you know, some sort of tragedy, and then what do you do with it? It's a much more internal process than, you know, it's a Jupiter-ruled Saturn, but it's not a fire sign, like you know, Saturn in Sagittarius. And the Saturn in Pisces is a mutable water sign. So it's much more internal, much more free flow. It's kind of, and I think I was noticing that when I was looking up birth charts with Saturn in Pisces, so much didn't seem to be nearly as externally visible um, mm -hmm. compared to some other placements. And I was like, I bet that's an internal experience for them, right? You could you could see some events, but um, yeah, it was much more that way than, than many other things I've looked up. So, um, yeah, both of those, I think, will be relevant. Certainly, Saturn, Neptune can be like that, but Saturn and Pisces can also be like that. And so, sort of the double duty of like, how are you going to emotionally orient yourself with regard to your ideals and your faith, especially when it runs up against sort of realistic uh, events or so forth that make you question that? Yeah, and I think um, you know one of the things that Neptune and Pisces has very clearly been about is about stories. Like, what's your story for the world? You know, a lot of people talk about ideologies, but a lot of times it's maybe more accurate to be like, what story do you think you're living in? Because people think they're living in lots of different stories. Um, and when a collective story um, comes to an end, there there is that like crisis of, it's not just a crisis, it is a crisis of faith, but it's also a like, a, you know, we use um, stories to um, place ourselves in time like what's happening oh well um we're at this stage of um you know the, there's the the sort of we locate ourselves by an, by an environmental story we locate ourselves by a political story etc cetera, etc cetera. and when a big story runs out people need stories um you know they're literally like they're global positioning things they're they're very helpful right like the story of what does it mean to be a middle-aged person um if i didn't know i was middle-aged i would uh, and that there's a difference between that and being 20 i'd be very confused by how my knees feel um and that that's a larger thing that's very private and can be very collective and i i have mm -hmm. one 
Um, one, just one example of what a Saturn in Pisces transit can look like when it's not um, deep, when it when it's not occurring in the deep imaginal. Uh, so I was going through this and I was like, oh, okay, what was happening for me? Right. Um, I broke my foot. I broke three or four toes and I had my jaw crushed by a foot all during Saturn and Pisces. Well, like a, <laughs> an actual foot, not a metaphorical foot. <laughs> oh, no, no. My, um, my uh my martial arts instructor was um literally an olympic level face kicker and gave me an olympic level face kick without a mouth guard and it broke my jaw in two places nice after mm -hmm. i'd been breaking my feet on people for the you know the lead up to that all right well i like that both as a literal event as well as a metaphor for saturn and pisces <laughs> yeah right just you know a little little bit on the surface too um, going back to what you were saying, Lisa, we saw a lot of that with Saturn, the Saturn and Capricorn Saturn return stories, because all those people from the late 80s were born with Saturn conjunct Neptune and Capricorn, and this question of, of how do you implement your ideals concretely. And there, that was such a more, all of, so many of their Saturn return stories had this so much more idealistic tinge to them than I was used to seeing in other people's Saturn return stories in previous years. I thought that was really striking. Um, I know you have actually a good chart example of a Saturn in Pisces in the second house as well, right? Uh, Karl Marx, yeah. Do you want to yeah. go into that? Yeah, so Aquarius rising, Saturn in Pisces in the second house of income and personal finances. Um, Communist Manifesto gets published then at his first Saturn return, just days, few, like three days after uh, Neptune and Saturn start their co-presence in Pisces um, in 1848, February 21st, 1848, if I'm remembering right. Um, yeah, so it's just kind of a perfect manifestation of like, um, obviously his life story was focused on income and finances, but it's also like, we are all one, right? All our finances should be one. Um, yeah, it's pretty literal. Right. So Pisces and Neptune can sometimes be just the blurring of boundaries or removal of boundaries mm -hmm. all, all together. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think, you know, I remember also the last Saturn in Pisces, one of the good things about being an astrologer and getting older is like you remember the past transits and how they went. So I remember Saturn in Pisces in the 90s and had a particular life experience, which I don't think was characteristic of Saturn in Pisces, but it prompted like a upswell of emotions. Like I did literally did not know how to contain them compared to like any experience before or for quite a while after. It was like, and, you know, Saturn in Pisces is like, how do you put boundaries on the boundless? And so this can be an upswell of emotion or any anything else that is just very free flowing. And um, yeah, it's like, what? how do you put Saturn in that when it is just this sort of oceanic thing that never really stops? Um, yeah, that actually, how do you pin that down? That actually brings up something that um, has come up with clients who are having uh, Neptune transits through, you know, like in contact with particularly sensitive points in their own charts, which is to remember that even the ocean has a floor. Mm. And yeah. so part of the, part of the work and work work is yeah. um, figuring out how to remember that there is a floor, even though you feel like you're just floating in like the deepest chasm of the ocean mm -hmm. at some mm -hmm. point it does stop. Right. 
right? Or how do you put artificial boundaries on it? Like, I'm going to cry for half an hour and then that's my crying time today, right? Yeah. Uh, again, not <laughs> saying that everyone's going to be crying through Saturn and Pisces, but it is more of an emotional transit, certainly, you know, compared to the last five, six years of Saturn and um, Saturn signs. I also, um, this is bringing up one of the things that I've been um, anticipatorially concerned about. Um, Good word. In the after in the aftermath of the Panini Press, which is actually navigating the grief of various levels that mm. has been stirred by the past couple of years, whether that's grief around things that you could have done with that time, if only, um, or grief around people who you've lost. Um, mm -hmm. Whether, like, I do wonder if at some point we will actually have, uh, see more deliberate collective expressions of grief. Mm, well, yeah. I, you know, that, that resonates really strongly with that, the pattern I was talking about with Saturn Pisces always coming after the, the double Saturn years mm -hmm. where, um, tra tragic things always happen. Um, yeah. and that part of that retreat to the imaginal is to deal with all of the, all of the real shit that has mm -hmm. occurred. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Like I know um, Tolkien's work, he claimed that it had nothing to do with the first world war and also, like, mm -hmm. there's reasons to believe that it had almost right. everything to do. Same thing with C.S. Lewis's work, which, you know, coming around, out around the same time. And when you're, you know, when you're in that creative, when you're, when you sit down to tell a story, you don't necessarily know that, you know, by, <laughs> by talking about um, the little hobbit that you're like, oh, that's actually, you know, like that resonates with maybe how you felt when you were in the trenches. Like that doesn't have to be conscious to, you, you don't have to be conscious that you're interacting with those deep emotional structures or scars in order to be interacting with them in a meaningful way that can change them. Mm -hmm. That that's that like, you know, deep underseer, you know, like the the dream, uh, the dreaming quality where you can be dreaming about how your dad was mean to you when you were a kid, but it it it's it, there's a monster and it doesn't look anything like that. And it's actually easier to access some of that stuff. Like you were saying, Lisa, about like the story, like the story that's close enough, but isn't too literal. Um, it, the being too on the nose, the, the mind will reject it and you mm -hmm. won't end up going there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, there's um, something about coming in through side gates. Yeah. yeah, very much. And Pisces is very indirect like that oftentimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I also wonder about, um, we have a bunch of transits that are going over recent transits. And so right this year, we have Jupiter and Neptune in Pisces. And then next year, we have Saturn in Pisces. And I do wonder also with regard to that, um, whether we'll have some like uncovering of like, oh, these things look rosy and fine last year, but we, d we just, you know, we, um, we now understand they were not fine, right? And it's kind mm -hmm. of like, taking away that bubble of 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 sort of um optimistic like imagine imagination mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. And, and it's worth noting that while we have saturn pisces because it's a jupiter ruled sign um we're going to get something very different every year as jupiter moves into the different signs mm -hmm. right so we begin saturn and pisces with the last bit of jupiter and aries which goes until may and then it's jupiter and taurus rest of the year and a chunk of next and jupiter will not be alone in taurus but will be there briefly with the north node um but for the entire time will be there with uranus and that's mm -hmm. another another one of our important historical pairings and so mm -hmm. it's not just saturn and pisces with neptune it's saturn and pisces with neptune ruled by that jupiter uranus conjunction which i think mm -hmm. is very interesting right mm -hmm. and yeah. jupiter and taurus 
Oh, I was, was going to say, say tor- <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, I was just going to say that's a great transition point because I've been meaning Thank to you. move us into Jupiter and Taurus because that's one last major, major signature transit of this year that we need to talk about. So let's. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. that was my that was my Pisces mm-hmm. trying, trying and keeping us on track. Coming in from coming in from the side to keep us on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I just want to make it more official. All right, Diana, mm-hmm. what were you saying? I was just going to say Jupiter and Pisces also features like two um, like kind of way stations in terms of Jupiter's relationships with other planets, which includes the square with Pluto which then mm-hmm. harkens back to the Jupiter-Pluto conjunctions um, yes. back in 2020, which like like lots of concentrations of wealth in particular directions. Right. Um, and then it's the opening sextile with Saturn, mm-hmm. which I think is very, very um, interesting in terms of seeing how this, you know, age of air is fruitings beginning to show more evident fruit so it's not just pluto and aquarius showing up around that um great conjunction degree it's also the relationship between jupiter and saturn they're getting more room between each other but they are also like affecting each other and like um there's like the fact that it's in um earth and water there's it's like what are what is actually beginning to grow here feels mm-hmm. like a relevant question also like what did you put out before the last hard freeze and is now dying like with that saturn mm-hmm. like influence mm-hmm. yeah For sure yeah that that jupiter saturn arc is i think is is really important you know if um people can imagine that uh, Saturn is like the sun and Jupiter is like the moon, just like we get, um, you know, visible lunar cycle as, as the moon starts to move away from the sun and get ahead of it. Um, you know, the opening sextile, which Diana mentioned, is sort of once the moon is like starting to get some good light, it's not quite half full, but it's it's not just a it's not just a dirty fingernail. You know, it's we're we're, we're kind of getting moving. We're well in we're most of the way through the first quarter of the cycle. Things are beginning to take shape. Only it's mm-hmm. a 20 year month rather than right, rather than a 29.5 day month. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about two of those alignments though that we're gonna have between Jupiter and um other outer planets. So first, as soon as Jupiter goes into Taurus at zero degrees of Taurus, it squares Pluto, which has recently moved into zero degrees of Eric uh, of Aquarius at that point. Mm-hmm. So um like Diana was saying, that's then the continuation, that's the the opening square of the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction that occurred back in 2020. And one of the things we talked about and observed like two major things that happened back during that time. One of them was this huge um, gap in terms of wealth where during the early part of the pandemic, when the first conjunction took place, there was this interesting phenomenon where after the economy initially, or at least the stock market initially tanked, there was a bunch of um, billionaires that started investing very quickly and then suddenly became mega wealthy and became even wealthier than they already were before everything took place. So they were able to sort of like use that to their advantage. Um, and that may be a recurring theme here. We may be returning back to that when we see this square take place. Um, I know there was another one that I was really focused on that year because it kept coming up every every time um, Jupiter conjoined Pluto, which is I kept noticing like an explosion of like conspiracy theories and ways in which 
things like that were being used to control and manipulate people. And I would not be surprised if that was another theme here when Jupiter squares Pluto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also with, you know, it's any of these first um, quicker transits, they're going to be hitting off the Pluto and Aquarius transit. You just watch them because that's going to be the initial inklings of like, what is this transit actually going to be about? And so what you should watch what takes place when those, um, uh, yeah, faster moving planets aspect Pluto and Aquarius. One of the things we haven't talked about yet with Pluto and Aquarius, we talked a lot about technological advances, but there were also a bunch of revolutions, you know, mm -hmm. the last time <laughs> there was the French revolution, there was the Haitian revolution. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that it does recall some of those Jupiter and Pluto themes like the conjunction in Capricorn, but that was in Capricorn. And this is now the square to Aquarius. And so I do wonder if there'll be some backlash or this like power to the people kind of thing. Um, I, I don't think it'll be only that, but I, I do expect something around that to come up. Yeah, well, especially... <laughs> especially with it being co-present with with uranus mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. which yeah. is you know um rebel with or without a cause like uranus you know uranus would love to be against something mm -hmm. <laughs> and then when you add like the taurian element which to me like there's very much a salt of the earth kind of person that describes mm -hmm. jupiter and taurus or that mm -hmm embodies Jupiter and Taurus. So it's like from the perspective like of of the people, like is this sufficiently disseminated? Whatever this might be. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And with the Jupiter Uranus cycle, which is roughly a conjunction every 13 years, um, you get uh you get waves of culture, right? Mm. Like the last one happened uh <clears throat> in 2010. It was in Aries and um, you have, uh, you have Occupy happening. You have the, the Arab Spring. You have this, like, you know, it's martial. Like, what, 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 should, you know, what is mm. the proper formation of culture? Oh, it, it, uh, it goes out and it does something. It's active. It's activist. That's Aries, right? Mm -hmm. The one before that, 97 in Aquarius. That's when everyone decided that technology and this internet thing, um, were the future. And everybody got really excited about that. That became what everything was about. And when you follow them back, like there's a, it's a cultural, it's the beginning of a cultural wave. Um, in some ways, it's Jupiter coming in to confirm whatever the like crazy Uranian either rebellion or new invention is. Um, and so we've, you know, we've, we've had Jupiter or we've had Uranus and Taurus for a while. And so the Jupiter's coming to confirm that and like create a little cultural wave around it. Yeah. What's additionally interesting about like the most previous one is that there it started in Aries, but then there were two more in Pisces. Mm -hmm. right. um, and just even thinking about the um, sort of wind out of sails that at least some of the revolutions along with the Arab Spring experienced, but that's not going to be the case for this one. It's just Taurus. Um, total side note, but one of the things I'm really hoping will happen with Jupiter and Uranus and Taurus is like an invention of another extraordinarily delicious baked good a la the chocolate chip cookie. Um, but I think it's probably going to be more was the chocolate the chip cookie, a Jupiter. No, it was a Uranus. It was a Uranus and Taurus. It was Uranus and Taurus. Okay. Um, well, gotcha. But what I think it's going to be more about okay, both my hopes up. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> what I think it's going to be is like fake meats. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. that's the thing that comes to mind is like, um, especially because we see Jupiter um, in relationship with more fatty things, right? It's like mm -hmm. tofu and tempeh aren't particularly fatty. <laughs> so it's like, how do you make a ribeye steak without a cow? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Yeah. Well, you everyone heard it here first. Fake meat, <laughs> fake, fake meat cookies, twenty twenty three. Hashtag. <laughs> Yikes! Uh, I rescind my sh- prediction. Okay. No, it's too late. No, you're probably right. Um, they, but it'll do other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, with it ruling the Saturn in Pisces, um, you know, uh, uh, Taurus is a Venus is a Venus ruled sign. I, I I think that very strongly supports the wave of good like good or at least better art um mm-hmm. like better cultural creation you know it's very um it's very art for art's sake and when you look at the last time we had a jupiter uranus conjunction in a venus world sign which was early 70s uh, a lot of great music literally got invented then like it was it was good for art um and then you know the the jupiter uranus jupiter uranus conjunctions also have um a political dimension right like like occupy was not primarily an aesthetic movement even though mm-hmm. we've also got that um and so you know i think it'll probably do a couple things one thing that i i hope it will do that's within the the realm of possibility is a radical pragmatism mm-hmm. right like let's get the food and the energy sorted mm-hmm. So let me show the chart because we didn't. I wanted to transition into this discussion, just clarify. So, this is the closest Jupiter and Uranus get this year. It's in September, where Jupiter gets to about 15 Taurus when it stations retrograde, and Uranus is at 23 Taurus at that time. So, they're within eight degrees of each other. Um, So, that's the conjunction we're talking about, or at least the most intense point of that this year. Although, really, from our perspective, it begins in May as soon as Jupiter goes into the sign of Taurus and begins that sign-based conjunction. Yeah. There were a lot of actually iconic food things that were uh, started during the last Jupiter-Uranus in Taurus, like M&M's started then. It was actually mm-hmm. really close to the exact conjunction. It was like the innovation was the melt in your mouth, not in your hand, right? And they sent it off to war because it was more like temperature stable. So, you know, there are innovative food things like that. Um, one of the things that sounds really like silly, but actually illustrates a good principle is... Um, Cheerios also started right around that conjunction. And, um, but they had started like the process of, of cereal extrusion, like a little bit before that. But then like Cheerios came in and like became the one that was remembered as the iconic one. And so I think there may be a parallel here where Uranus has already been going through Taurus. It's already been innovating some of these things, but then Jupiter comes through and like someone takes really good advantage of that or does something a little better with that. And that's the one that sticks. Like, I'm not saying I'm a Cheerios fan. I'm just saying the principle. You know, it's I also think, I think hilarious we can all that, agree that Cheerios is the most rebellious cereal. <laughs> it's also hilarious that Cheerios are called Cheery O's. That's like like Jupiter's coming in being like, oh, right. hey, I have jokes right. and cereal for you. Yeah, right. they, like, they, it's true. How close did they come to being nifty O's? <laughs> right. They were called something else, actually, but I don't remember yeah. what it was initially. Um, but the other thing that I love that I hope we'll have more repetitions of is um, the last time that Jupiter and Uranus were in Taurus, although granted Saturn was there too, I believe, um, was the implementation of the 40-hour work week uh, mm-hmm. with overtime pay otherwise became national, right? Um, and it was literally like the innovation is more leisure time it is more time to slow down um so and be kind of a human being not doing you know um and i love that i hope we do more of that um being a jupiter and taurus person (laughs) but i um, I think i think that's a great catch like uh, you know if we're talking about jupiter coming in to confirm things that uranus has been working on in taurus uranus has absolutely been working on um 
a labor movement for the last several years. And so that I think that's a really mm-hmm. good call. Some parallel to that is a really good call. Well, and the, the other piece I love about that is it actually two Jupiter cycles prior when Jupiter was also in Taurus, um, that first started um, being implemented, I think it was the Adamson Act for railroad employees. So just interstate railroad employees. But then later with the Jupiter and Uranus together, it was like a bigger innovation, right? So I'm hoping for more of that. I know there's like movements around like the four day work week and things like that. So um yeah, I, I like that idea because it's sometimes so hard to sort of typify Jupiter and Uranus and Taurus because they have some antithetical qualities. But I do think like the innovation is rest uh, is pretty perfect. Yeah, and when, as you mentioned, the last example of that is uh, interfered with very strongly by Saturn. And it's mm-hmm. also, it's it was in 1941. So kind of everything, almost everything except Cheerios is just about war. And the M&M's. Oh, and the M&M's. <laughs> um, some of my, speaking of, of Jupiter conjunct Uranus, some of my favorite natal examples of that are uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers, who had Jupiter conjunct Uranus in the sign of cancer. Interestingly, he unveiled the quote-unquote Think Different ad campaign on August 8th, 1997, which was also a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction. So Think Different as as a slogan for Jupiter-Uranus, I think, is a significant one. Well, um, I, let me just uh, jump in with one thing. And that's that's mm-hmm. what I was talking about with, like, the Jupiter-Uranus starts a cultural wave. Right. Apple, Apple, like, uh, at like that ad campaign you're talking about concentrated and typified that excitement around tech. It wasn't just these are new tools. It's we're going to be different. We're, we're going to think different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're also like unveiling those fancy iMacs at the time that were all like neon colored and stuff. So that was pretty cool. Um, similarly, more locally related in our community, the company Astro Dienst was founded under the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Sagittarius in 1983. And that has just been, you know, they were one of the first astrology companies to get on the internet, and they were the first one to start offering free birth chart calculations through their websites in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that was just a huge technological game changer for astrologers that has influenced a whole generation of astrologers since then. I mean, I think we all started calculating charts on astro.com, right? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's huge. And then another one that I found last night is um, Tim Berners-Lee also has a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Cancer, the same one that Steve Jobs had. And he was the founder of the World Wide Web. And he came up with um, the whole idea. He actually proposed the idea while he was working at CERN in Switzerland in 1989. And he made the first proposal um, within days of the first Saturn-Neptune conjunction, where it was that Saturn-Neptune-Uranus conjunction that was in Capricorn, and he made a proposal for what would become the World Wide Web to his boss. And what was funny is there's, like, the original proposal paper still exists, and it has a note scribbled from his boss that says that the, the proposal was vague but exciting. And I loved that as a as a Uranus Neptune Saturn conjunction, vague but exciting, and then it turns into the World Wide Web. Yeah, well, it's so certainly that's, it's certainly proven to be exciting, for sure. 
So yeah, Jupiter Uranus conjunctions and technological innovations are are major themes. Um, so I, I would expect something like that coming up this year with that Jupiter Uranus conjunction in Taurus. All right. So um, other things that we need to mention are very brief overview of the year ahead that we're doing here at the start that we've gone way over time, but I think that's okay. And maybe we'll mention a couple other things really quickly and then we'll we'll take a break. So one of them we need to mention is that there's going to be a Venus retrograde in the sign of Leo this summer. And this is going to be a major Venus retrograde that actually repeats a Venus retrograde from eight years ago. So here are the Here's a graphic with a time frame. Venus stations retrograde on July 22nd, and it's retrograde in Leo for 40 days and 40 nights approximately until it stations direct on September 3rd. So there's a broader time frame involved that starts way back in June when Venus first goes into Leo, and it ends in October when Venus eventually leaves Leo. And that's like the full time frame of the entire transit when it's activating that specific sign of the zodiac. But the most intense period will be that retrograde from July 22nd to September 3rd. So how are you both feeling about Venus retrograde in Leo? I know one of the things one of the things I always remember from the last one eight years ago, uh, and this it was conjunct Jupiter at the time, but that was when same-sex marriage was legalized in the United States by the Supreme Court that summer. And that's something I always remember from that time frame. Yeah, I think the only two things I can remember from then are that uh, are is the legalization. And we started doing this podcast together. And I believe you used the the Venus Jupiter um, as a big part of the first, of the election. I remember you scrambling to try to set up a Patreon so you could get the most out of that Venus Jupiter conjunction. So, Chris, maybe that's a thing for us because then we also hung out at the previous one, which was the previous Venus retrograde in Leo, which was at the last Project Hindsight conclave. Yeah, which started the day of Venus stationing retrograde in Virgo back when it, the, this retrograde still started in Virgo and then went back into Leo. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. So the forecast has a Venus retrograde in Leo stamp to it in some sense then, uh, which is funny because you were just out here for like a tarot conference randomly mm -hmm. and, and we asked you if you wanted to join us for the forecast and then the rest is history. It's been like eight years now almost. Yeah, and that's that's something that everyone should look. Is there anything? Is there an important relationship that is coming up on eight years? Um, because you you see uh, you see really important um, benchmarks in that. Like Kate and I got together right before that one in two thousand seven. Then we got married. Uh, basically one Venus cycle later, right after the Venus retrograde in Leo. Right after it went direct. I'm not uh, terrible at astrology. Um, and then we may have some more benchmarks coming up. Um, so yeah, like, and you know, you and I, like we, we also, um, have moved close to that cycle as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Venus retrogrades always have this like backwards looking, um, tinge to them because Venus literally like slows down, turns around and the planet of relationships starts moving backwards in the cycle of the Zodiac. And I think sometimes there can be this reflective quality of looking back on past relationships and reconnecting with people from the past that you used to have closer bonds with and reevaluating some of those relationships. 
Yeah, and also just the it it's um it's sort of you know doing uh doing a full cycle Venus cycle with someone uh, or with something else else that's Venusian. Maybe you've been painting for just about eight years, um, but it, it there's a level of completion to the relationship, and then you're going to do another cycle together. In an in an ideal world, I would advise everyone to do exactly one eight year Venus cycle before getting married. It's not practical in most cases, but um, there are kind of no surprises in any part of the Venus cycle if you've done that. Yeah. I do sure. also really like that Venus is going to be in Leo for four months, even if it is retrograde for part of that time, and Jupiter is going to be in Taurus for the second half of the year. And those of us who have been getting hit by the Saturn and Aquarius transit for a few years, it's really a welcome shift of like two benefics for at least part of the year versus Saturn and Saturn Uranus being very close. Yeah, so interestingly, so here's June 6th, looking at the chart animating the charts. And as soon as Venus goes into Leo, um, it, it has a kind of a tense opposition with Pluto as its first opening thing. But then, yeah, you're right, it does then quickly move into the first square with Jupiter. And then in the build up to the retrograde, Venus is closing the distance and almost catching up on Mars, which is kind of an uh, interesting inversion from what we saw earlier in 2022 when Venus was retrograde in Capricorn and it was Mars that overtook Venus. But instead, um, Venus slows down and doesn't catch up to Mars uh, before it stations retrograde. And one of the things that it does while it's in Leo is it has three squares with Uranus. Um, with the first one taking place there in early July at 21 Leo to 21 uh, Taurus, where, where Uranus is at that point. So this Venus retrograde is partially tinged by that square with Uranus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which will be setting off the, some of the same transits as we've had with the Saturn-Uranus square, um, at least to the Taurus house for each person. Um, right, but, but Jupiter then, will be there kind of affirming things rather than only destabilizing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How do you feel about Venus retrograde square Uranus, Diana? Um, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot, and especially when it comes to the way that, you know, Venus retrogrades are always going to be disruptive and for relationships generally, but also specifically wherever Venus is in charge of things in your own chart. And when you add the Uranian component, um, one of the things I've been thinking about quite a lot is, um, and this is in part because it becomes relevant in a lot of my own client work, is thinking about how old stories become factors in new relationships and how Mm -hmm. old stories will erupt into new relationships um, in really surprising and destabilizing ways, which then having Uranus and Jupiter together in Taurus forming that square with retrograde Venus, it's like, it's more like really supported stress testing then uh, all of a sudden there's gnomes laying dynamite in your house, right? Um, it's it's It feels much more constructive than it would be without Jupiter there. Um, but absolutely one of those times where, oh shit, I didn't know I was going to react like that, might be quite noisy. 
especially in the the lead up to the venus uh venus's retrograde station because venus mm-hmm. and mars are just hanging out in all of the like the, the the lead up the shadow and so the the first um the first venus uranus square is also with mars uh, uh square uranus and with mm-hmm. mars right there so it's mm-hmm. probably gonna be front loaded with difficulties yeah. interruptions yeah, and I think it's interesting to note that the next Mars-Venus conjunction actually happens at 6 Aquarius, um, so across the street from where this particular Venus retrograde is happening. Mm. And then later in the year, there's um, a bunch of, like, there's a Mars-Sun conjunction opposite Uranus um, that just in terms of forming a shape with how that interacts with the Venus retrograde, there's something about... Um, relationship arising rooted in the fixed signs if that makes sense Mm. so yeah or relationship catching fire yeah that too like the 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 compost pile where you've been dumping all of your unresolved uh conflicts uh spontaneously combusting yeah there we go (laughs) yeah well, there's something also to be said for, you know, Uranus going through Taurus and going through a, a house for each person where we don't like things to move quickly or change mm-hmm. much. And so that's already been a thing for a while mm-hmm. here. Um, but with that Venus squaring Uranus three times, well, one of the things that always really happens with Venus, Uranus, hard aspects is like things move more quickly with, um, mm-hmm. you know, interpersonal things, whether that's like romantic relationship or otherwise, people tend to be much more free and open with um, socializing and with kind of making quick Mm -hmm. connections. And that can be a good thing too. Of course, it has that review quality since it's going to be doing that during the Venus retrograde, maybe like people very quickly coming back from your past or things like that, or, or Mm -hmm. issues from, you know, earlier in your relationship, very quickly arising um, to be reviewed. But um, there can be some constructive things with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. After you. All right. I was just going to add, um, uh, add to the idea of things uh, changing more quickly in Taurus than normal, and that having been a thing for the last several years or five years at this point, and we're you know we're going to be pinging that Uranus in Taurus without Saturn to hold it back um, mm-hmm. all year. So all of the Uranus stuff that's been there, but it's immediately hit a hit a wall. Like any of the like, oh, I'm just gonna what if I just changed the whole way I was doing this, or what if I you know what if I this or what if I that? There's no um, you know, there's nobody to to hold Uranus back. There's none of none, none of the hold me back, bro. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of things are just gonna move. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a really good point. Um, yeah. I was just gonna add, there is something too about thinking about even Venus in retrograde motion is contributing some sweetness to that Taurus situation, and so. Um, like there's a phrase, um, I first heard it from my friend, um, Ari Felix, and I'm not going to remember where they first sourced this in the moment, but just this idea of moving at the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. And there's something about Venus and Leo being in deep self-sovereignty, like a certain form of sovereignty. Adrian Marie Brown, thank you, Ari. Um, like, how does that then contribute to moving faster than you could have moved previously, especially in the aftermath of having all of the eclipses in the Taurus-Scorpio axis, right? The North Node passing through Taurus, increasing the volume on the Uranian, like, speed, speedboat sort of situation. Um, Like, there's there's some potential there of that being uh, productively 
I don't know. There's like, there's like a generative eros there that's like rooted in clear sense of self and potentially disruptions facilitating that clear sense of self mm-hmm. that then allows for moving forward. Well, I think sense of self is a really um, sense of self idea of self vision of self is a pretty key thing for this Venus retrograde because it's all in Leo. And so it, it's sort of, you know, like one of the, the, the way a lot of this stuff will come up is, oh, I, I don't see myself as the kind of person who lives this way, or I don't see my, mm-hmm. I don't, uh, like, I don't, like, you know, like it's the, the, like the, the, I, how should we say, uh, self image being a major issue in relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you, do you, can you, or, you know, or someone seeing themselves, what is it, through a mirror darkly, right? Like, like distorted self perceptions, mm-hmm. um, uh, impacting relationships and mm-hmm. the you know the the working with the result of good work through that being um you know a more a more form-fitting comfortable <laughs> um you know flattering uh self-image that you know mm-hmm. is more connected to who you are taking off the garments mm-hmm. of power and putting on the pajamas which is by the way a saturn and pisces fashion trend um, garments become uh, looser and comfier consistently um, in terms of what's popular. Um, what's Thank that? God. And, flow, and, <laughs> flow, and, and I, flowier as well. The return of the caftan. <laughs> I, I am tired of the tight pants decade that we've been in for, for a while now. Well, that's, yeah, it's the, uh, it's the whole testosterone uh, crisis, right? It's just yeah. the pants. Yeah. So I like the Venus direct station where Venus stations direct at 12 Leo in early September and it's squaring Jupiter and right around the same time Jupiter stations retrograde. So there's sort of a positive affirming quality to the end of that retrograde period after the tumultuousness of the sort of obsession of Venus ingressing into Leo and then immediately opposing Pluto, where you get this sort of like intense smoldering sort of relationship or other person dynamics. And then you get the co-presence with Mars, which is a, you know, energetic, um, but potentially sort of explosive or combustible type of energy as well in terms of personal relationships. You get the instability and the excitement of the Venus Uranus square early on. Um, but also the, the sort of instability of it. But then you get this nice affirming quality towards the end of the retrograde when Venus stations direct and starts moving forward again into the future. And then interestingly, immediately after the Venus retrograde and the Venus transit through Leo ends, uh, Venus ingresses into Virgo in early October. And then immediately um, a, a bucket of cold water is dumped on her head when she opposes Saturn and Pisces. So there's like this interesting like beat or like sort of chronology to the whole Venus retrograde this summer that will be really fascinating to see how that plays out, uh, you know, taking some of those archetypes and how it works out specifically in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do a nice um, play-by-play during our third quarter analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we're back from a little bit of a break here, and we're going to move into uh, the second part of this, where we go through a quarter-by-quarter analysis of each of the months of 2023. So first, I want to give a shout-out to our sponsors. Uh, Our first sponsor is the Honeycomb Almanacs and Calendars, which are custom-built with your natal chart and favorite house system. So Honeycomb tracks your natal transits alongside mundane transits so that you can write your own personalized forecasts. You can customize the location for your almanac and find the exact moment when the transit occur in your time zone. There are many ways to personalize your almanac with optional plugins like solar return charts, community artwork, or zodiac releasing. 
Honeycomb Almanacs and calendars are available in print and digital editions, starting at just $10 for a six-month almanac. Find out more at honeycomb.co. And um, we're getting a little close to the like Christmas season, but I know this has become like a popular holiday gift or end of the year thing that a lot of astrologers get. I think, Diana, you mentioned you get one every year around this time. I get one every single year. The past two years, uh, somebody has gotten to it before I have and has given it to me as a birthday gift, which has been really lovely. Um, but they are so... And like I'm I'm obsessed with them, honestly. Like if somebody is a little bit beyond beginner astrology, this is one of the most useful things that you can have on hand to continue with your studies. Um and like I don't know, it's it's somebody just put in the chat it's indispensable. That is exactly what it is. Um it's super, 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 super useful. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. Because that's one of the most important things when you start learning astrology is following your transits every day or as regularly as you can, because that's when you start to see the planets come alive and you start to see how your birth chart works and how these different symbols actually work in practice, like in real life. Like that's that's how you connect things is, is through transits. Yeah. And one of the things I love about it is um, I think it's part of the traditional astrology plugin. It includes your annual perfections and your zodiacal releasing. Um, and so like if you're using it to track your perfections, it will highlight every single transit that involves your perfected year boss. Um, when it comes to ZR, it'll tell you when you are switching any levels of those periods, those timing periods. And so it's just... <clears throat> It's and the fact that it's paper. I mean, some people love the digital version. I prefer the paper version, um, just because there's something about the tactility, and then it goes alongside. Like my previous ones, all live with my previous year's journals, so I can whip out my journal and my honeycomb from that year together. And it's just like the cross referencing is just. Ugh. It just. Yeah. It's, I was delightful. <laughs> I have my print calendar up behind my computer screen so when I'm like working someday and I get like a particularly annoying email and I just can't understand why I'm irritated I can glance at it and see I'm having like Mars conjunct natal Mercury that day and then I'm like okay that's what's happening mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's really really customizable and also the art we haven't talked about the art right right you can put in which art pieces you want there's like a few different styles from like specific artists and you can choose which ones you want to illustrate your journal um yeah <clears throat> yeah super good learning tool um and most calendars most astrology calendars just do the general transits the mundane transits um but it's really unique unique and sort of tracking your own Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know how they do that, like what the technology is, but somehow they print each one custom to your actual timed birth chart. You have to enter in your full birth data and they spit out one that's customized to you instead of one of these other ones that's just, you know, for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And that you can choose your house system and you can choose your location. It's really cool. You can also choose one of the things that I love doing. Um, it's one of the add-ons is adding the uh, lunation charts. Mm -hmm. So at the back end of mine, it has all, all of the lunations for the entire year, just all together. So it's really easy to do certain kinds of assessments. Um, and, you know, if, especially if you're a practicing astrologer, that becomes really useful to have like a very quick glance. That's not meaning you have like six different windows open on your screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, um, 
I don't know, you know, there's something very irreplaceable in not just learning about astrology, but really knowing how it works um, mm -hmm. by just watching your transits, right? Because mm -hmm. you may be good enough um, as an astrologer that you can be like, oh, when Mars sextiles my moon from this house, this kind of thing will probably happen. And even if, you know, you're mostly right, just seeing it happen over and over and over again, having that part of your daily like consciousness um, mm -hmm. allows all that to sink into a much deeper level. It's mm -hmm. really like I haven't seen anything, um, uh, any sort of uh, product or aid like honeycomb that would be nearly as effective. Like it's mm -hmm. just kind of the best case version of that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, shout out to them because uh, they are one of our favorite sponsors pretty much ever on the podcast. You can find out more at honeycomb.co and I'll put a link to it in the description below this video on YouTube or on the astrology podcast website for this episode. And um, can I say something about the art really quick? Please. Which is that the art store where you can just get the art itself is closing at the end of this year. And I just finally got some myself this year which I'm trying to show you and failing. Um, it's on super high quality paper. Like it arrived mm. and I was shocked at how high quality the paper is. Um, so this is one of those things where if you're like, I want more art, like go buy it now because nice. you won't be able to <laughs> very soon. So yeah, those are really yeah. beautiful. I like that you have those up behind you. Yeah. They're so nice. All right. They're nice. Yeah. Awesome. And so Honeycomb is our first sponsor. Also shout out to our second sponsor, which is the ephemeris.co birth chart pendants, where you can go on their website and actually enter in your birth data and they will send you a custom astrological necklace that displays your planetary placements in your birth chart. So the ephemeris birth chart pendant is a bespoke piece of quality jewelry to help people connect deeply with their birth chart. All pieces are unique and handmade in the US, and you can choose what zodiac or house system you prefer, and even put a custom engraving on the back for whatever you want to say, either for yourself or, or to who you're giving it to as a gift. So as a modern look, it's gender neutral, and it looks pretty good with any outfit. Um, you can also get a different readings that are available with it. They've sold these to more than 2,000 or 20,000 orders and counting. So it's actually starting to become really popular. And you can actually get a 15% discount with the promo code Astrology Podcast if you purchase one on their website at ephemeris.co. Um, and this is another good sort of gift type thing, especially during the holiday season. Um, there's the engraving you can put on the back. And um, yeah, I think it's cool. Again, I don't know how the technology and all this is like working at this point, but that you can customize these things like to your actual birth chart is just kind of wild to me and kind of crazy compared to where we were, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's a really good gift. You can also do it for things that aren't birth charts, like a significant moment, like when you and your partner met or, mm. you know, charts of like important events in your life. That's it would nice. be really cute to have like as like a besties chart, like yeah. like best friends necklaces. Like if you know when you met your bestie to mm -hmm. like cast a chart for that moment. Oh, that's adorable. Uh, or like I'm a composite still, chart. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, I brought it up before, but I am still waiting for them to offer like a, a flavor flav style, like one foot <laughs> <Giant>. in <laughs> diameter. Yeah. Well, you know, so everyone knows what time it is. <laughs> that's gonna I be a special. A special order so you would definitely put where that for like a forecast episode if they made a special one 100 mm -hmm. 
putting that in as a request. Everyone needs to wear that to like the next in-person conference. Yeah. All if right. you need a name tag when you have like a foot, a foot size, like a foot long, yeah. foot diameter of birth chart it, on your chest. It's okay if it gives me neck problems. I won't, um, you know, I, I won't sue. I'll deal with that. That's really funny because that means there's probably some like past life version of you in the medieval period that that was you wore like a big uh, astrolabe like on your chest, like when you walked around as an astrologer in that time period. Yeah. I like hope you, so. You were the one in the scholar's robes that was completely embroidered with uh, astronomical symbols. God, I, I, I hope so. Yeah. Love that. All right, cool. Well, shout out and thanks to ephemeris.co. Once again, uh, astrology podcast is a promo code for 15% on their website. And I'll put a link to that in the description below this video or on the podcast website. Um, so thanks a lot for sponsoring this episode. All right. We've completed the first half of our journey and now the, the broad overview of the year ahead of 2023. Now it's time to get into the details by jumping into the somewhat quicker month by month analysis and quarter by quarter analysis of 2023. So let's jump into it right away here with January, the month of January. For those watching the video version, here's the planetary alignments calendar. This is from our wall calendar that's available on the podcast website in our merch section. So it shows the major transits that we're having this month. I'll just read off some of the major ones. Um, major one is that we start off the year in the midst of a Mercury retrograding Capricorn, and that reaches its halfway point just after our first lunation of the month, which is a full moon in Cancer on the 6th. And then the next day, the Sun conjoins Mercury and we get the halfway point in the retrograde. The following week, Mars finally slows down and stations direct and ending its long retrograde period in Gemini, after which point it'll start moving forward again and picking up steam. The following week, Mercury stations direct on the 18th of January. Then we get our second lunation of the month, which is a new moon in Aquarius on the 21st. Uranus stations direct on Taurus on the 22nd. And Venus departs from Aquarius, where it started at the beginning of the month, and moves into Pisces on the 26th. So that sounds already like kind of a dynamic month where we've got planets moving forward, three planets all stationing direct that month, Mars, Mercury, and Uranus. Uh, how, are you, how are you guys feeling about that? Well, I really feel like January, the big, big thing is just Mars stationing direct, right? Because mm -hmm. that's it's been in Gemini since August 20th of 2022. It's been retrograde since the end of October. So really finally moving forward with, um, you know, actions that have kind of been held back um, or things that we've needed to redo. And now we're finally going to move forward with that energy. I think it'll just feel a lot better personally too. Like whatever you've been trying to work on or needing to work on and put energy towards, it can finally move in a constructive direction rather than like unpacking past things. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that um, a lot of the New Year's resolutions aren't actually going to pick up or feel possible until mm -hmm. after that direct station. So for those of you who are resolutioners, I don't know if that's a word, um, maybe consider building in quite a bit of grace period for yourself and just be like, throughout January, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to implement my plans. Mm -hmm. So that way, come February, you can use Mars picking up speed to pick up speed. That yeah, we, we actually said the same thing last month when we were looking at it. It was like, mm -hmm. oh, maybe, maybe not January 1st for mm -hmm. the, for the edict. 
Um, I agree entirely that Mars is the big thing. And so it's worth noting that um, Mars is right next to a big royal star, literally all month. It's right next to Aldebaran, um, which is um, going to supercharge Mars's direct station. Um, I think it's going to have... A I think it's going to have a significant impact on world news mm. um, as well as on personal lives, probably better on a per almost certainly better on a personal level than on a reading the news. I read the news today. Oh boy. Uh, level, um, but very powerful. Um, but like Diana was saying, um, you know, there's the direct station, but it's going to take weeks to, you know, perceptibly move. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like a big old train. Like you, it slows down. And it takes a while to get any um, any forward momentum. I would also add, not to be a negative, Nelly, but um, the stationing direct of a malefic isn't um, doesn't turn it into a benefic. Like Mars doesn't stop wanting to burn things down or destroy things because it's direct. Um, whereas later in the year we'll do Venus. Venus is much more positive um, uh, when direct than retrograde. Whereas Mars is going to be, you know, Mars is going to know exactly, it's going to be, it's a forward march, but it may be a forward march to a battle. I've seen um, on a personal level, I've seen like relationships that were contentious during a retrograde um a mars retrograde just end decisively on a mars direct and it was for the best right uh it was it's better than like being in limbo but you know mars direct isn't necessarily you know it's not necessarily parade worthy it's a serious planet that's doing a serious station yeah so so some of the conflicts that begin at the beginning of the retrograde in october sort of reached their logical conclusion in january when mars stations direct and moves forward again and you know the ancient symbol egyptian symbol for mars and some ancient astrological text was a knife and so sometimes that theme of like severing or separation can become prominent and when mars stations direct you sort of know what to sever or separate and the mm -hmm. necessary um, use sometimes surgical use of mars uh, can be good at certain points in your life and uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Stella from Reddit, who illustrated this Mars retrograde graphic for us that shows Mars entering its shadow on September 3rd, stationing retrograde on October 30th, stationing direct on January 12th, and then finally leaving its post-retrograde shadow on March 15th, which tells us that there's still going to be a bit of a cleanup phase um, for several weeks before Mars is fully finished with its business in Gemini. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of talk about the Uranus return that'll be coming up in the U.S. chart in the seventh house. And I just wanted to note that Mars is actually stationing conjunct the natal Uranus in the seventh house of the U.S. chart. So it may may bring things up. Um, it's also very close to Biden's Saturn in his seventh house, since they have kind of similar charts with sad rising. Um, not really predicting anything specific around that, although... It does make me think about the new Congress starting in January and mm -hmm. how, you know, the House has changed um, party majorities. And so that seems very like, you know, Mars conjunct a Saturn in the seventh of like a no, you can't you can't do what you want now. Right, because his Saturn's at nine degrees of Gemini and, and Mars mm -hmm. stations at eight degrees of Gemini. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So all of that is important. Also important, as we mentioned, is the Mercury retrograde. So Mercury entered its shadow on December 12th. It stations retrograde in Capricorn on the 
29th of December, so right at the very end of the year, and it doesn't station direct until the 18th, and then finally leaves its post-retrograde shadow period until February 6th. So we're going to be dealing with some Mercury retrograde things, which is also important since Mars is in Gemini, which is the sign ruled by Mercury. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and the two are obviously tied together. They're also um, in a bi-sign contra-antitia, which gives them a little bit more interaction than they would otherwise have. Um, and that, like that, you know, in a, it's almost like Mars won't fully be stationed direct until its ruler Mercury is also direct. You know, Chris, you you brought up the knife as an ancient symbol for Mars, <clears throat> and you know the severing, um, as I gave an example of a relationship, is not necessarily a happy thing. But knowing where to cut is way better than flailing around with a knife, right? If we're mm. comparing the two, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, flailing but, around with a knife is a good, just actually metaphor for what we were seeing when Mars like stationed retrograde in October and early no November with all of the like chaos that was happening on Twitter at the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It'll be interesting to mm -hmm. see if some of that doesn't start hopefully calming down or or moving in a less crazy and chaotic direction. I mean, one of the things that's also different about January compared to the previous two months is we've been going through the tail end of Jupiter and Pisces. But one of the things that's different that we haven't talked about yet right from the start of 2023 is Jupiter is now out of Pisces and is firmly back in Aries in a Mars ruled sign. Mm -hmm. um, so that's providing part of the context for the entire first five months of 2023 as well. Right. And yeah, and kind of empowering it to be a little more constructive since Jupiter is sextile Gemini, uh, sextile Mars, while Mars is like direct and moving through um, the rest of Gemini for the first three months. Yeah, Jupiter's wanting to confirm that sort of bold martial activity um, mm -hmm. that's like maybe slow to begin, but very decisive. Mm -hmm. um you know again you may not see much you, the the forward march may seem slow but um there's like you know there, there's a very decisive uh backed by aldebaran backed by that big red star um it's a very like i don't know yeah it's a very uh, very pivotal very pivotal pivot <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, about face of mars definitely going in in, in a direction um and taking mm -hmm. resources and taking taking things with it sorry yeah a little, a little inarticulate but I'll, I'll stick with like big old freight train definitely setting out along a course like slow to begin but it's hundreds of tons moving in that direction mm -hmm. and yeah once it gets when, inertia it's moving yeah and then then it has crazy momentum Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, speed. I mean, that was something we saw last year when we got the initial preview of Jupiter and Aries is just the speed of, of events starts to quicken a lot because that's like a major keyword for Aries is like the need for speed uh, and putting Jupiter in that sign while Mercury and Mars are stationing direct and starting to move forward again. I think we'll see the momentum of things um, start to pick up really fast in early 2023. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, something I wanted to mention um, just that happens just before January starts is um, the U.S. gets its exact Pluto return one more time. It'll be mm -hmm. close again later in the in the year, but this is the exact, exact um, three days before the new year. And um, so that's a 2732 Capricorn. I do also think that's um, kind of interesting with regard to the new Congress starting. I, I noticed as Mercury went into its shadow um, <clears throat> recently, and kind of preparing for its upcoming retrograde conjunct Pluto, which is setting off the U.S. Pluto return. There were a number of 
news stories that seemed really relevant to that. Like there was one about, um, there was like an Oath Keepers list that was leaked and they found like 300 people who were like current or former DHS um, employees. There were also like more of Mark Meadows texts um, analyzed and some of them were like Congress people asking him to declare martial law and things like that. So I do think that that's going to be relevant as we start the year for the U.S. in particular, because it is really setting off that exact Pluto return. It'll come back within half a degree when it stations again in September. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm. Yeah, and as we uh, unfortunately once again head into election season in the U.S. and start to see primaries and everything else pick up, if assuming that happens, depending on the candidates. Mm -hmm. um, one good thing is uh, here's a graphic from Archetypal Explorer that's very familiar to us at this point because we've been watching it for like three years now, but it's the Saturn-Uranus square, which we got the last final closest pass of. Uh, go exact in October, but by this point, Saturn and Uranus are really going to start to move apart and gain distance and finish uh, that square that's been off and on for three years now. And a lot of that's just the background and some of the technological stuff that we've been talking about recently coming to fruition, but there were also a number of um, social tensions and different things like that that I think we saw with that square um, that might, at least in terms of that alignment, uh, move a little bit more into the background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, the, 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 go ahead. Yeah. I'm pivoting. It, so you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just a quick, like the, the Saturn Uranus square um, had the two planets whose essential meanings are diametrically opposed Saturn order and control. And then Uranus chaos, freedom, liberation, um, you know, like those are those are not easy to square. Um, and then when they're in a position where um, they're uh, where it's very difficult for them not to get in each other's way um, in a historical period, like the one we're just coming out of, um, the two exaggerate each other. And you have this like uh, you have the the back and forth you've had, right, where um, chaos, uh, too much chaos creates uh, a clampdown of order, which creates uh, which creates, um, you know, uh, how do we put this? Like a um, a reactive chaos, which creates reactive order, like mm -hmm. that whole thing. Um, like we're coming out of that. Uh, yeah. You know, the, coming into the Saturn Pisces years where no one's in control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be happy for that to for that to move apart. Yeah. Just same. Let things slide. Mm -hmm. I just also wanted to bring forward something that you were mentioning earlier, Austin, which is this uh, Mercury retrograde that's ending in Capricorn. Like all of the Mercury retrogrades this year are in Earth signs, um, except the last one starts to tease us into the fire sign Mercury retrogrades. So that's something that you can potentially even include in your New Year's resoluting if you want to, is keeping in mind that Mercury will be retracing and editing stuff in your Earth houses right and it makes so much sense just historically like all this shit has happened over the last several years it's time to um rethink solid things mm -hmm. like you know it's like okay you know <laughs> not to beat this to death but like okay what about food what about uh mm -hmm. what about food what about energy what about like the basics right mm -hmm. yeah for sure and also worth mentioning um, Pluto Mercury stations retrograde conjunct Pluto as well as Venus and 
every time we've seen like Mercury stationing retrograde in a hard aspect with Pluto over the past few years, we've seen some disclosures come to light. Yeah. Um, like disclosures of hidden things that are going on behind the scenes. So that may be a theme of this first Mercury retrograde of the year as well. Right. Yeah, disclosures. Totally. And also, you know, it's finishing up the latter part of Pluto and Capricorn. So it's setting that off for, for everyone. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes that's been like financial disclosures of like what major uh, billionaires are doing or where they're moving around money. Other times it's been stuff with the government. Um, it'll be interesting to see what this one is about. So I think that might be good for January. Shall we move to February? Mm-hmm. Did you want to do, you have an electional chart oh, for January you need to do? <laughs> Thank you for remembering <laughs> that. You. We actually have a very fine electional chart towards the end of January. Once mm. uh, Mercury stations direct and starts moving forward again, so that we get it in mm-hmm. just after that retrograde period. Um, so here's our electional chart for January. It's set for January 25th, 2023 at about 7.20 a.m. local time. So set it for about 7.20 a.m. local time in your city and then adjust the ascendant until the ascendant is at about five or six degrees of Aquarius. And that will give you a chart where the sun is right on the ascendant, having just risen over the eastern horizon at the time of the election. <clears throat> So the election has Aquarius rising with Saturn in its own domicile of of Aquarius in the first whole sign house in a day chart conjunct Venus. So this is actually a Saturn election. And one of the reasons we're recommending is because it's one of the last great Saturn elections you can get in this entire six-year period where Saturn has been transiting through its own signs. So it's going to be almost a full 30-year cycle before you can get any amazing Saturn elections, at least in its own domicile again, like this. So the chart features the moon in the later part of Pisces, and it's applying to an out-of-sign conjunction with Jupiter in early Aries. So um, it's a pretty solid chart for Saturn things, for Aquarius things, which can be good with technology, communication, things that are slow to start up, but then eventually have a pretty solid foundation once they get get moving. Mm -hmm. And staying, staying power. Yes. Longevity. Yeah. Um, what are the other, some of the other good points about this chart that we picked out, Lisa? Do you want to pull it back up? Yeah. Um, well, I really like that Mars is now direct, which it hasn't been for a bit. So you can use that Mars direct sextile Jupiter. Jupiter's in the overcoming sextile uh, to Mars with reception. So I really like that in terms of things getting going, like we were talking about. It's towards the end of the month. And so Mars is actually starting to move a bit um, after its station. Then... Um, Let's see what else. Um, as you said, just one of the last times that you can use Saturn in its own sign uh, in a day chart before that moves on. Um, Jupiter's in the third house, so good for things involving communications, um, particularly sort of um, rapid communications, efficient communications with that sextile to Mars, and um, things involving neighbors or siblings, uh, immediate neighborhood, and so forth. Yeah. And the last thing I like about it is even though it's Saturn in the first house election, having Venus there is going to help to smooth over the aesthetic of anything that you start at this time and make it just Mm -hmm. a little bit more aesthetically appealing and a little bit sleeker, uh, which is kind of nice uh, in terms of Saturn elections because you can't always get that. Mm -hmm. So that is our major electional chart, our, our primary electional chart that we recommend for January. Um, We're going to record and release our January Auspicious Elections podcast here 
uh, in the next week, where we're going to go through and pick out at least three or four other auspicious electional charts for January. And that's something that we do each month, each month for people who sign up to support the podcast through our page on Patreon. So you can get access to that podcast at theastrologypodcast.com slash elections to learn more about it. And Lisa and I also recently launched our 2023 year ahead electional astrology report, where we went through each of the next 12 months and we picked out the single most uh, auspicious or lucky electional date that we could find for every month of 2023. Mm -hmm. So really good for planning ahead. If you want to plan ahead your year, um, you know, decide things to launch in September or the summer or what have you. Um, we found, I think, pretty much a good election for most planets to feature each planet um, throughout the year. And um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. So people can find out more information about that at the astrologypodcast.com slash 2023 report. And we're actually going to run, we're running a, a discount through the end of December until January 1st, where you can get a 15% discount on the report if you use the promo code Jupiter during checkout. Uh, so check that out uh, for more information. All right. Shall we move on to February? Yes. Slowly, right. like like Mars pulling out of the station, <laughs> like gaining speed. Well, thankfully and luckily for us, February is not one of the more explosive or exciting or dynamic months. I don't think there's a lot of like major alignments this month. The primary things worth mentioning are there is a full moon in Leo on the 5th of February. Mercury finally gets out of Capricorn after its extended trip through that sign due to the retrograde and it moves into Aquarius on the 11th of February. Then we get a, a dazzling looking Venus-Neptune conjunction on the 15th, followed by a little bit more sober Sun-Saturn conjunction on the, on the 16th. The Sun moves into Pisces on the 18th as it does around this time every year. And then we actually get a new moon shortly after that in Pisces on the 20th, the same day that Venus moves into Aries. So those are some of the major things about February. Are there any major notable things about this that we want to dwell on? There's well, like there's... a weird, weird um, Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Valentine's mm -hmm. Day is like features the moon opposite Mars that evening, at least in the U.S. time zones. So moon opposite Mars. And then we go to Venus-Neptune conjunction exact the next day. But the day after that is the, um, what was that, the Sun-Saturn? Yeah, mm -hmm. the Sun-Saturn conjunction. And so they're both really in effect. All three of those are in effect like... Not that Valentine's Day is the most important thing, but it's, you know, <laughs> some people will celebrate it. So it's just like a, um, a conglomerate of like sort of disparate energies. Like the mm -hmm. Venus-Neptune is is very, um, you know, sort of over-the-top love, boundless love, but then um, not, not necessarily like fully realistic. It's like, you know, let's see what happens the day after. And the day after is the Sun-Saturn conjunction. And so that's the that's like whole bucket of reality. <laughs> so, right. I mean, it, it could be like really... Go ahead. I was going to say it just sounds like a situationship rather right. than a relationship. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it could be really great if you're like already in a positive, committed relationship because then you got the positive Sun Saturn and then you can go over the top with the Venus Neptune. But mm -hmm. and the Moon Moon Mars opposition could be a little conflictual then. Right? Spicy. Yeah. True. Yeah. So, there, there's a definite uh tension or, or interesting dynamic though between the realism of sun and saturn and the practicality of that versus the romantic idealism especially of that conjunction being in pisces in mm -hmm. you know the sign of venus's exaltation with neptune mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 
Another sort of facet of February is that we see with that Sun-Saturn conjunction and also with the Sun square to Uranus and Taurus, we really have like the last gasp of the Saturn-Uranus square that we've been living mm -hmm. under for three years. Mm -hmm. um, and that has really characterized the dynamic, uh, uh, the, the sort of background dynamic. And so this this reactivates it a little bit. You know, it's one one last activa activation. It's not as intense as the activations that we had in 2022, but it's it's sort of the Saturn uh, Saturn Uranus squares last chance to show us anything. If it if yeah. it left anything out, right. um, look at that Leo lunation, that Leo full moon. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the full yeah. moon, you know, makes makes it very obvious. Yeah, so the full yeah. moon for those listening to the audio version is at 16 degrees of Leo, and that's very closely squaring Uranus at 15 degrees of Taurus. So there's a, a little bit of an unpredictability uh, to that, that Leo full moon on February 5th. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about that Sun-Saturn conjunction. This is the last Sun-Saturn conjunction in a Saturn sign for, you know, a hefty amount of time. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So there is something about if you over the past, whether it's just while Saturn's been in Aquarius or the entire time Saturn's been in Saturn signs, um, the potential of deliberately cohering, like kind of wrapping up for yourself, um, some of those Saturn efforts that you may or may not have been doing intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, and it may be a little, mm -hmm. it may end up being a little retrospective too. Mm -hmm. You'd be like, oh, this period's coming to an end. Oh yeah. Like I, I endured that. I managed that. That didn't go so well, but like, you know, uh, the, like, you know, at the end of Saturn at the end of one of the signs, there's always a feeling of like, okay, this, this thing is ending, even if you're not mm -hmm. watching astrology. Yeah. And there's something about the idea of a reality check that's not so much about a forced disillusionment, but an assessment of what's real, if that makes any sense. Like, it mm -hmm. has the potential of being very constructive rather than womp womp. Right. Well, it's like an inspection where you're like, okay, mm -hmm. looks like the foundation's cracked over here. This wall held up really well. You know, you just, it, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Because the entire theme that you first came up with, Austin, I think last year with the Saturn Uranus, one of the biggest themes that just kept coming up over and over was stress testing and like shaking something. And if it was built on a solid foundation, it would like survive it after a little bit of disarray. But um, those things that didn't have a, a solid foundation just crumbled and collapsed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So looking, you know, maybe looking over some wreckage, but also looking at, you know, what made it through, right? Because mm -hmm. it says mm -hmm. something about, you know, whatever part of whatever part of your chart Aquarius is, um, you know, whatever made it through there, right, still standing has some pretty serious endurance. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, thinking about my Aquarius rising, I don't know if I have that much endurance, but I made it through and I'm <laughs> you made forward. It. I made it. Well, okay. It, you endured quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. With uh, I can't believe how well that lined up. Just with like what classically what they say about Saturn going through the first house and health issues, mm -hmm. getting COVID like right at the beginning of that when Saturn moved into Aquarius, and then hoping that would be a short term thing, but then it's just turning into a like a long term chronic sort of illness since that time. Definitely looking forward to Saturn departing and moving into Pisces. All right. I think that's good for February then. Why don't we keep moving on briskly to the next month, which is March. And this is one of the big months where 
things start getting serious. Um, one of my favorite aspects, actually, it was almost my favorite aspect of February, but it doesn't complete until March 2nd, is the Venus-Jupiter conjunction that goes exact on the 2nd of March, and that is the same day that Mercury moves into Pisces. Then a few days later, on the 7th, we get Saturn departing from Aquarius, thankfully moving into Pisces for the next three years. So this is a long-term transit that's going to last until 2026, and interestingly, that day also happens to be a lunation where we get a full moon in the sign of Virgo also on the 7th of March. So the following week we get a Sun-Neptune conjunction on the 15th, Venus moves into Taurus on the 17th, there's a Sun-Mercury conjunction on the 17th, Venus, or sorry, Mercury and the Sun move into Aries on the 19th and 20th, then we get a new moon in Aries, then a little planet called Pluto uh, waltzes into Aquarius on the 23rd, which means those of us with Aquarius placements get an approximately like one or two week break before major outer planet transits happen through that sign. Then Mars moves into Cancer on the 25th, Mercury conjoins Jupiter on the 28th, and Venus conjoins Uranus on the 30th. So March is a big, big month. It's incredibly dynamic. There's just so many changes happening. Yeah. So huge shift of Saturn leaving the fixed signs. Uh, Pluto moving into the fixed signs, mm -hmm. and then Saturn moving into Pisces, and Mars leaving Gemini, leaving the mutable signs alone. So there's this really interesting mutable sign shift where it's like a wrestling match where Mars departs from the mutable signs, but then like taps in Saturn, and Saturn goes into Pisces, then sitting with the mutable signs for the next three years. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like really when the newness starts of the new year, I feel like the first. Yeah first two plus months is just like going back over old ground. Um, but then there's all sorts of newness in March. And I feel like um, it's really interesting that the month starts out with that Venus-Jupiter conjunction in Aries, because there's such a strong push towards like new initiating. And we can finally kind of use that Jupiter in Aries to be even more initiating um, once all the old transits are kind of like moving on. Mm -hmm. Which is fascinating because the ancient... Uh, you know, in the medieval and especially amongst the Persian astrologers, like the new year started with that first, um, started in March, basically, mm -hmm. with the Aries ingress and the annual ingress of the sun into Aries as the start of like the solar return year for the world. Right. Yeah. And our, uh, our Aries ingress day is particularly interesting this year because we have a new moon within, I think an hour or two of the sun's ingress into Aries, the moon catches mm -hmm. the sun. And so we have a new moon at zero degrees Aries. Which also means we'll have a new moon at 29 Aries in April, yes. which is not part of this quarter, but I think it's one of the most, I'm just extraordinarily fascinated by it because it's kind of a reverse blue moon. It's like instead of two full moons in a zodiacal season, we're getting two new moons. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, I'm fascinated. I'm very excited to see what that shapes up to be. Well, and we'll get to this next month, but the second one is an eclipse mm -hmm. in, in Aries. Yep. Right. Okay. So major, major Aries energy going on here, major shifts and new beginnings in the month of March. 
Yeah, that, you know, we have the, the Venus-Jupiter. So Venus-Jupiter conjunctions are good for doing new things, but they also, um, Venus-Jupiter is also when you get uh, rewards are distributed for previous actions. Um, the, 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 um, the arc between them is how you get the, the lot of praise and commendation. Mm-hmm. Right. The like, it's basically like the cash prizes and trophies. And so, of course, during a, a Venus Jupiter conjunction, when it's perfect, that lot is always conjunct the ascendant. Um, and so, you know, what are, what are people, what are people getting praised for? Right. Like being bold, being, making the right calls under fire, like martial stuff, mar- like initiating, you know, initiating boldness, pioneering, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's funny because it's both a good time to start things like that, as well as a time where past actions that fit the criteria are rewarded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also this time period. One of the things I've been thinking about with March specifically is like right around the middle of the month. Um, I'm calling it the Ides of March because it's the Ides of March, but there's a beware feeling there where we have the Mercury-Neptune conjunction followed by a Sun-square Mars, followed by Venus-square Pluto, followed by Mercury-square Mars, followed by that uh, Mercury-Kazemi, like all in that center section of March. Yeah. Um, look, at, look at it right here. It's all at 25 Pisces and Gemini yeah. mm-hmm. on March, yeah. March 16th ish. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's mm-hmm. for the audio listeners. It's Mercury reaches 25 Pisces and conjoins Neptune at 25 Pisces and conjoins the sun at 25 Pisces. And Mars just happens to be at 25 Gemini at the same time. Mm-hmm. And at the and, same time, Venus and Pluto are squaring each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, also, even outside of all of that extra stuff, it's also just the third Mars-Neptune square. And those have been really interesting. You know, that was, mm-hmm. it was the retrograde Mars-Neptune square where we saw the FTX scandal and a bunch of other um, Neptune bubbles got wrecked, right? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, it's maybe hard to believe that any bubbles would remain unpopped. <laughs> um, but just in case there are, right, we have a third pass of Mars against that. And uh, as you all pointed out, this one, uh, in this case, it's uh, hyper emphasized with the sun and Mercury and all the other kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's almost like a, this is the last chance to sort of um, reveal what was going on that may have been murky before with the Mars-Neptune square, because it's mm-hmm. the third and last time. It's also right when Mars is leaving its shadow, just that little bit of the end of Gemini before it moves signs. So it's kind of like, I don't know, just like throwing the curtains back of like, if you missed something before, here's the last chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still referring back to something from probably the October timeframe when Mars first was passing over those degrees. Um, but individually, I mean, just delineating some of those pieces, it's like Mercury square Mars is like arguments, discord and communication, um, sometimes like bad language or offensive language. Then we also get Mercury-Neptune conjunction, which is like um, unclear communication or sometimes outright lies or deception. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of our other keywords for this this constellation? Well, one thing about the um, Mars-Neptune square, um, my partner and I were talking about this, and he brought up the concept of the fog of war. Yeah. As yeah. a relevant thematic. And when we're adding in Mercury and the sun alongside that Neptune, I feel like um, like I'm thinking in terms of code breaking, right? Mm-hmm. Like aggressive, aggressive breaking through other people's methods of communication for uh, warlike reasons, like that kind of thing 
is kind of coming up for me. Mm, mm. Yeah. And there's been a lot kind of talked about with information warfare, I feel like, mm -hmm. since Mars has gone into Gemini. So mm -hmm. it really ties into what you're talking about there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's uh, it's also just going to be kind of messy and confusion. There may be like yeah. some very clear glimpses in the midst of the fog. Um, but one thing I was going to say is just Mercury is kind of trashed for the first two thirds of the month. Um, like it's, it, it's co-present with Saturn, it's combust, it's in its fall, it's with Neptune. Um, you know, the, like the logistics situation with Mercury is not great for, you know, un until what is it? The 21st, when does Mercury move into Aries 20th, mm -hmm. 19th? Uh, 19th by the, by the yeah. 19th. Yeah. Yeah. So first two and a half weeks, um, not, not great for Mercury. Um, in, in the intelligence reports not coming back with good data or with accurate data. Yeah. Communication like, fumbles also, yeah. like yeah. trying to say something spicy, but like getting booed off stage instead. <laughs> right. And then also, because I mentioned this earlier, but just the Mars-Neptune square previously coincided with that period right after um, Elon Musk took over Twitter. And then all of a sudden he changed the verification system, which is what allowed uh, people to distinguish like actual accounts from fake accounts. And then all of a sudden a bunch of people created fake accounts impersonating just thousands of different people and companies and used that in order to just like wreak havoc and say things that were not what the creators of that account would what, want them to say in various ways. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And that's like, you know, a week and a half after Saturn's ingress into Pisces. And then it's the next week we get, uh, it, it's the next week, is it the 23rd that Pluto moves into Aquarius? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think um, um, invoking the trepidation around the Ides is, is quite appropriate, Diana. Mm -hmm. Like, there, it's just, it's just chaotic. Mm -hmm. That is such a chaotic thing. You know, one thing I was thinking about also with Pluto going into Aquarius is like, We've also never had just a, like a disappearance on a wide scale of technology. And at some point, if disruptions to certain things like the internet could be a thing of oh, just that people become aware of at different points. And it was something I meant to mention with Pluto and Aquarius as a potential at some point there, because that would be consistent with the archetype as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's also just going to be, you know, the, the area of Aquarius, um, it has so much action in the last few years. So we've had, you know, the Mars-Saturn conjunction at the beginning of Aquarius. We had Jupiter-Saturn conjunction at the beginning of Aquarius. And um, Saturn then just for several years. And so Pluto just dipping in and then stationing, which we'll get to. Um, it's like a deepening of an area that's already, you've done a lot of work on. Mm -hmm. It's a deepening, deepening, excavating. You already thought you worked on this area, but there's, there, there's going to be more. Mm-hmm. Sorry, thick signs. Yeah. <laughs> <God damn it. laughs> yeah, we won't get all of it, but you're gonna get a little taste of like what whatever house Aquarius is for you. It's like a yeah, it's just it's just two months. Right, right. It'll start to start to build the little tunnels underground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. All right. So that gets us towards later part of March. We get a lovely Mercury Jupiter conjunction there around March 27th and 28th, which should be much more positive for communication. 
um, especially direct, bold, relatively quick or potentially like brusque communication, but affirming or, something. Yeah, triumphant, um, mm -hmm. triumphal language. Yeah. At the same time, at the very end of March, we get also lovely Venus-Uranus conjunction in Taurus, uh, which can have kind of an exciting or electric effect in terms of relationships and one-on-one -on relation, one -on -one relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. And that's at the mm -hmm. same degree as the Uran eclipse from November 7th. So it's pinging an eclipse degree or an eclipse degree. It's not just a mm -hmm. Venus-Uranus conjunction. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice. And that pretty much closes out the month of April or the month of March. Well, there's Mars uh, moving into Cancer. And there's also the, the third of three Mars-Saturn trines, the previous two happening in Gemini Aquarius, but the last one happening in Cancer Pisces, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. Okay, I like that. So here's Mars departing and moving from Gemini into Cancer on the 24th and 25th. And then right after that, we get a, a very stabilizing and affirming trine between Mars and Saturn. It looks like on the 29th and 30th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this, right. this really marks Mars's resumption of normal movement, where it'll be a month and a half-ish for each sign. We're, we're done with the like eight months in a row of one sign. And Mars and Cancer isn't isn't a particularly glorious phase for Mars, but it's sort of back to normal. Like Mars and Cancer can, you know, a lot of times as a transiting influence gives kind of a sullen, um, uh, sullen and sometimes I don't like demotivating sort of energy, um, but it's not the same sort of dramatic, um, chaos inspiring, like nail bomb throwing Mercury retrograde in Gemini that we were mm -hmm. going through. Yeah, one of the keywords that came up with me with that Mercury retro or that Mars retrograde was um, shooting yourself in the foot uh, was like a Mars stationing in Gemini thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, we're back after a brief break. Let's transition to talking about the second quarter of the year at this point, starting with the month of April. All right, top of the month, Mercury goes into Taurus on the third. We've got a full moon in Libra on the sixth. Venus goes into Gemini on the 11th, and the same day there's a Sun-Jupiter conjunction, which is pretty nice. Then we get our second lunation of the month, which is actually a solar eclipse in the sign of Aries on the 20th of April, and then the Sun moves into Taurus the same day. Then the next day we have Mercury stationing retrograde in the beginning of technically our second retrograde Mercury of the year, starting on the 21st of April. So that is the major stuff. So at this point, we get into eclipse season. Is that our starting mm -hmm. point? Is the biggest thing of the month? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, right. it's so, you know it. Well, it, it, I mean that's not until two thirds of the way through the month. You know, it's the sun in Aries, and it's with Jupiter. We get our Sun Jupiter mm -hmm. conjunction, and we also have a continuation of some of that, like triumphal, bold, bombastic stuff. Um, that we saw earlier that we really have seen notes of throughout the uh, throughout the year since its beginning since Jupiter's return to Aries um, yeah. and a nice uh, nice consuming moment between the Sun and Jupiter but uh, you know the Sun and Jupiter's conjunction is also um, you know it's a period where Jupiter is invisible and it's a it's a rethinking um, and a reflecting on the Jupiter cycle. It's much more a let's look back at how Jupiter and Aries went moment and start 
imagining, you know, imagining what we might be trying to do for the next Jupiter cycle, right? Because Sun, the mm-hmm. uh, Sun Jupiter is a year cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is right, that leads into our first eclipse, mm-hmm. which is also the first eclipse uh, on the uh, Aries Libra axis, right? So we get, an, uh, as Diana mentioned not long ago, um, <clears throat> They, um, we have two new moons in Aries, one in the first degree, one in the last, and the one in the last degree is actually, um, it's, it's a hybrid eclipse, which I didn't know what that meant, which means that, uh, at some points it looks like an annular and others it looks like a total eclipse, but it's a very serious solar eclipse. And for those who can view it in, it's like Oceania, a little bit of like, I think Southern Thailand and a lot of Northern Australia. Um, it, you know, it'll look like, a, like a full on eclipse. It's not just a, a little stain on the sun, right? Like there's, there's a serious blotting out. Yeah, so right there at 29 degrees of Aries, and I'm going to put up the eclipse chart that Paula Bellomini, who did most of the graphics for this episode, so shout out to Paula as always, uh, our superhero in the graphics department. So this is the eclipse sheet for 2023, and we can see that first eclipse taking place on April 20th at 29 degrees of Aries. It's going to be followed in May by a lunar eclipse in the sign of Scorpio. Then later in the year, we get a Libra eclipse in October, followed by a Taurus eclipse. So what's happening at this point is that the nodes are going to shift signs over the summer in July. And as a result of that, um, all of 2022, the eclipses were taking place in Scorpio and Taurus. So we were seeing major beginnings and major endings happening in the Scorpio-Taurus axis. But now that axis is going to start to shift at this point in 2023 and move more into the Aries-Libra axis at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's a very ombre effect into the next set of <clears throat> set of uh, eclipses, because I know that historically, oftentimes we only just get one sort of blend eclipse season and then we're fully into the next axis but here both eclipse seasons are that blend of going from uh scorpio taurus into aries libra which is super interesting um and then i feel like it makes sense to say this now since we're already talking eclipse seasons one thing that i'm finding super interesting about this year's eclipse seasons is that the first pair are Mars ruled with Mars and Cancer. The second pair is Venus ruled with Venus and Virgo. And we are switching the axis from one Mars-Venus axis to another Mars-Venus axis. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this really, there's real undercurrent of the Mars-Venus dynamic in the eclipses this year. Mm -hmm. For sure. And this March, April, there's just a lot of growth going on in in the Aries area of everyone's chart because there's a Venus- Jupiter conjunction at the beginning of March. And then there's the Sun-Jupiter conjunction mid-April. And then there's a new, um, you know, a solar eclipse, but it's on the North Node side. So it's just like Mm -hmm. growth and growth in this area. Yeah. Yeah. When I was doing the last week, I recorded year-ahead horoscopes for all 12 rising signs. Um, I just noted how much having the eclipses in two pairs of signs this year is really just going to be activating two different um, axes in the chart in terms of those houses that are opposite to each other. And it's going to be 
on the one hand, wrapping up the themes of the Taurus Scorpio eclipses and bringing the, that period of major endings and major beginnings to completion while opening up like a whole new area of major beginnings and endings, starting with this very first eclipse in Aries. And then that's going to carry through into 2024, like a whole sequence of events that'll keep happening in six month increments. Mm -hmm. So, um, Trying to think if there's anything else about this eclipse that we really wanted to mention. We'll come back to it, of course, next month when we well, continue and we get our second eclipse. Yeah, I mean, what's one thing that's really significant is that um, Mercury stations retrograde conjunct Uranus the next day. Mm -hmm. um, and then the sun enters Taurus the next day. Um, and then by the time we get to the next eclipse, really the like the end of uh, April and the first portion of first half of May are really a very discreet thing. Like they're like the first half of April kind of doesn't have anything to do with this. But once we get to the 19th of April and then until we're basically 15th of May, it's eclipse time with a Mercury retrograde in the same sign uh, or on the same sign polarity as the uh, as the eclipse and jupiter enters uh taurus where the north node is and where mercury's retrograding it's such it's almost like um like a hangover um of the of the of the of the the taurus action that we've been having for the last couple of years mm -hmm. it's very like disruptive reorganizing um yeah disruptive reorganizing emphasis on that same area and mm -hmm. so we'll you know we're probably going to see some of the same um some of the same issue with like logistics and shipping and supplies and shortages and but the next version of that yeah um the last mercury retrograde that stationed retrograde conjunct pluto at the end of december had this more this quality of like disclosing things which were hidden or getting to the bottom of something um this mercury retrograde conjunct uranus has that more classic technological things on the fritz unexpected communications and disruptions um and just the the curveball that sort of comes out of nowhere type energy yeah, and, which and is then, which already complements because that was something you've always said, Austin, um, about the chaotic quality of eclipses, and that was really, really evident to me in that last pair of eclipses that occurred in Taurus Scorpio in uh, October and November. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they, I mean, they just churn things up. Um, you know, you're it's yeah, they get things they get we they do get things moving, but often not in along their planned routes. But like, yeah, all this stuff for like two, three weeks, just all kind of works together. Um, and, you know, we, we were talking or, you know, Lisa, you said something uh, earlier about, you know, again, the change, like the capacity for change in Taurus. And now this is all the same. You know, this is a very similar set of activations for Uranus and Taurus, but without Saturn standing in the way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for so sure. Probably a big month for Tauruses and Taurus mm -hmm. planets. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So that Mercury retrograde begins right there around April 20th. And then Mercury is walking backwards through that sign for the remainder of the month. And it just reaches the halfway point of the retrograde cycle and conjoins the sun. It looks like on the first day of the next month on May 1st. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Back to the alignments calendar. 
month of May, very first of the month, as I said, we get the Sun-Mercury conjunction in the middle of the, that marks the middle point and usually the turning point of the Mercury retrograde where things start to take a turn for the better and the things that were thrown up in the air at the beginning of the retrograde start to move towards at least some sort of resolution. Interestingly, on the very same day, we have Pluto stationing retrograde uh, in the sign of Aquarius, so it's going to begin to make its way back into Capricorn after this point. Then a few days later, on the 5th of May, we get our next eclipse, which is a, a, a lunar eclipse in the sign of Scorpio on May 5th. Two days later, on, on the 7th, Venus goes into Cancer. Then we get a Sun-Uranus conjunction on the 9th. Mercury stations direct on the 14th of May. Then Jupiter departs from Aries and moves into Taurus for the rest of the year on May 16th. Jupiter squares Pluto on the 17th. We get a new moon in the sign of Taurus, which is interestingly not an eclipse for the first time in a, in a little while at this point on the 19th. Then Mars moves into Leo on the 20th and immediately opposes Pluto and Aquarius the same day. The Sun moves into Gemini on the 21st, and then Mars squares Jupiter on the 23rd. So Macy's the continuation of some pretty big shifts and some pretty big changes, it seems like, as we continue and get the second half of eclipse season. Yeah, there, um, there's um, so much that gets rearranged in May, or the like end of April and then really well into the first half of May. Um, it's a lot of, in Taurus, it's a lot of like substantial things being rearranged. It's not just ideas being rearranged um, or color palettes. It's, you know, um, it's uh, 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 large things like planets, but also uh, heavy and substantial things down here on Earth. Yeah, it looks like this Taurus, the, the Scorpio eclipse on the 5th is at 14 degrees of Scorpio, which is really close to that previous Taurus eclipse that took place in November, which was at like 16 Taurus, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Uranus eclipse. Yeah, so people with like the middle degrees of the fixed signs, especially in Taurus and Scorpio, it's like reactivating something from November. Mm -hmm. But on the interesting and sort of positive side, that's the final eclipse in Scorpio. And after this point, the eclipse series is essentially finished and is brought to completion. We do get one more eclipse in Taurus later in the year, but there's no more after this like year-long period of eclipses in Scorpio. It's over at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of a like, leave Brittany alone, leave fixed signs alone a bit from this year because it's like oh well, saturn's finally gone and you're not gonna have to deal with this anymore but we do this is one of a couple pretty major things that happens in fixed signs this year mm -hmm. yeah like in our overview i wanted we sort of wanted to say that there's a shift away from fixed signs and that you know a lot of the heavy stuff moves on to the mutable or the cardinal signs since the eclipses are moving into cardinal signs and saturn's moving into pisces and into the mutable signs but it's like there's still a lot of lingering fixed sign stuff with Pluto going to Aquarius and the continuation of these like lingering Scorpio and Taurus eclipses taking place in, in that axis. Right. Yeah, this still being the last Scorpio eclipse in that sign and also on the South Node side, it just feels really like what is what is very and truly dead and just gone. Yeah. It's, it's the last one. Taking the last bag of clothes to the thrift store after the Marie process. Yes. 
Only it smells really bad. So maybe you're actually taking it to the dumpster and <laughs> not the like thrift store. They're like moldy old clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get it attacking the last disgusting corner of the basement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. All right. So going back to the animated chart. Um, that Jupiter ingress is, I feel like, is the, one of the most major things of this month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's going to bring some relief for fixed signs aside from the unfortunate immediate after that, like square with Pluto and then Mars ingressing into Leo, creating a kind of a tense T square between Jupiter, Mars, and Pluto. Mm-hmm. And Jupiter will mm-hmm. be conjoined uh, Rahu or the North Node uh, for that first bit. Yeah. Okay. The, but Jupiter's going to hang out in Taurus and try to help and stabilize things long past Mars's time squaring it. Um, the North Node is going to leave um, within a few months and go into Aries. Like Jupiter, Jupiter won't immediately arrive as a savior with all the answers, but, you know, give it eight months and you'll see significant improvement in those areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, um, what was the Beirut explosion? Wasn't that a Mars-Jupiter square? I think it was a Mars-Jupiter something. Like a couple of years ago, because um, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm trying to think about keywords for Mars square Jupiter, but then when you also have like Pluto magnifying it, right? Because um, uh, you know Mars itself can be like an explosion or like gunfire, but Pluto or Jupiter usually makes just makes things bigger or more expansive, and then Pluto also has that quality of taking something small and making it bigger. For some reason, I'm thinking wildfires. Mm. especially like Jupiter and Taurus. I think a lot about uh, forests specifically as a location with Jupiter and Taurus and with Mars in Leo. I don't know, just like, like something about, uh, you know, people thinking that they're not doing anything major and then Pluto comes in like Pluto being maybe Mm. Pluto and Aquarius, like a unexpected bout of wind coming in and increasing things. Yeah, or, um, you know, with Mars, yeah, Mars, North Node, Jupiter, Pluto, like, could be a big attack, big, like, it's, it's, it looks, um, decidedly destructive. Mm-hmm. Austin, you mentioned the North Node being conjunct Jupiter. And I just remember how, at least in the medieval tradition, they talk about the North Node increasing whatever it touches. So it's said mm-hmm. to sometimes be good with the benefics because it's theoretically increasing their beneficence. But, um, I know there's some debate about whether that's, a good or bad thing because it may just be making it even larger making jupiter even mm-hmm. bigger whatever jupiter is signifying mm-hmm. so yeah in the uh, in the vedic tradition that i have some education in um jupiter like that jupiter um north node might be good for money but it would not be good for happiness um mm-hmm. one of the things that we look at from that angle is uh, how the north node and jupiter disagree quite a bit about sort of spirituality and compassion and like a big perspective like that is not what the north node uh is there for um like the the uh, rahu doesn't like the churchy um kumbaya part of jupiter but is fine with the let's get rich part of jupiter so it's helpful in some ways but also negative in others 
Um, there is, by the way, a funny, um, a funny section in Ficino where he calls out um, these texts that think that Jupiter and the North Node is such a great thing. Um, and he literally compares the the North Node, the head of the dragon, um, to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He's like, listen, mm. putting Satan on top of Jupiter is not going to give you better results, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. That is funny. <clears throat> well, so that's a bit of a tense and rocky start to Jupiter's ingress into Taurus. But otherwise, once we get past that point, as we, as we go into future weeks, um, I think we'll still see some more positive manifestations of that placement, especially since Jupiter is now moving into like a fresh new spot in the zodiac that we haven't seen any time in recent years, you know, until 12 years prior. So Jupiter also at this point is going to be ingressing into a new whole sign house for everybody in their in their birth charts. So paying attention to what house Jupiter is moving into as a potential area of growth and expansion over the course of the next, especially the second half of this year. Mm -hmm. And I really like, I can't remember if I already said this or not earlier in the overview, but I really like the um, Saturn and Pisces once Jupiter gets into Taurus because it's this nice supportive sextile and not just a sextile in general, but, um, you know, because Saturn can see its ruler then as opposed to uh, Jupiter being in Aries. And it's also just such a tangible sign. It's earthy. It has foundation. I feel like that'll help kind of counterbalance all of the Saturn, Neptune, and Pisces. It like puts some ground underneath the mm -hmm. dreaming. Yeah, it makes the ocean floor more palpable. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah and and, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, finally, um, I like this second lunation of the month, which occurs around the same time, the the uh, new moon in Taurus, only in so much as this is going to be the first time that the you know, fixed signs have a new moon there in Taurus that's not an eclipse. And I've just seen in recent years what happens when you get those year, you know, that year and a half period where you're just getting eclipses in a certain sign back to back in six month increments. And it's just throwing everything up in the air and indicating these like major changes and shifts um, in that sphere of the chart. But then you eventually get that first month or that first year where lunations start going back mm -hmm. to normal and things just kind of slow down a little bit in that sign. And I think that's a little bit helpful here, in addition to Jupiter moving into that sign at the same time and kind of smoothing things over after a, a somewhat rocky like year for Taurus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. It's It's been more than a year, right? Yeah. Yeah, since what was it, it was late 2021, November of 2021, I think that was the lunar eclipse in Taurus that started it all, right? Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So help is coming for Taurus, but slowly, which is maybe very appropriate. Yeah, and Uranus will still be there. So it'll be better, but not maybe back to the... Uh, perpetual sturdiness that you might prefer. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, but it's at least it's like help. You can um, just managing Uranus is a lot easier than managing mm -hmm. Uranus square Saturn and both the nodes, right? Like, yeah. yes, one problem at a time. Yeah, right, right. I do think this will change the pace a bit too, because even though Jupiter is co-present with Uranus, it's still moving out of Aries and moving mm -hmm. out of those transits, which is very fast-paced, very rapid-fire Mars, um, and moving into Taurus. And Jupiter in Taurus is more slow growth, though it will mm -hmm. be a little bit um, quicker-paced once Jupiter gets closer by degree to Uranus. But I think overall, that, that sign shift right there mid-month um, should start kind of 
slowing things down a little bit and giving mm-hmm. you kind of like more a uh, yeah, slower paced, kind of like moving at your own pace rather than moving at the speed of events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we already mentioned the Jupiter-Pluto thing, so maybe we don't have to repeat it, but just that we noticed distinctly like a major uh, transfer of wealth and like ideas of wealth sort of exploding back when Jupiter conjoined Pluto in 2020. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the perspective from the opening square here being... Uh, potentially more uh, proletarian in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, at the beginning of the month when Pluto stations, that'll be the very first station in Aquarius. And I always really like to pay attention to the first planetary station when something moves into a new sign, because um, it'll just start expressing itself a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an intensification of whatever it is that that planet and that transit signifies. Right. Yeah, the, it's, um, it's a little bit like high tide, where the waves will then, even though it's going to um, pull back from there, the waves will, will leave behind a little little artifact of what Pluto and Aquarius is and does and will be when it comes back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's been interesting. Over the past three years, a lot of the discussion of Saturn and Aquarius has been about sometimes like censorship on the internet and what's okay to say or like what boundaries there should be put on free speech on the internet. And it it keeps going back and forth about different levels of that and ways to approach it. Um, I think that this Pluto station Aquarius will be really important in terms of that as we move into the next phase of, you know, social media and everything else and the way that that influences society in different ways, as well as society's attempt to counter or influence the influence of social media itself mm-hmm. so you know in the previous stage it was about putting rules and restrictions on it with saturn in this instance like pluto's always about like control and manipulation um mm. so i'm assuming it's going to move more in that direction of different attempts by different power players to control and manipulate social media or through mm-hmm. social media in some way yeah it's right? making it's making me think about how social media, like so many of the apps are deliberately, have been very, very deliberately built to generate addictive behaviors, like addictive relationships with those apps. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to, uh, in an Aquarian Plutonic way, apply that to behavior outside of the apps more intensely? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, Pluto, and if we're thinking about Pluto, like Pluto is already a planet that has to do with like compulsion and sometimes mm-hmm. obsession or addiction. So, so thinking about that going into a sign mm-hmm. associated perhaps with the internet or social media, it doesn't seem like that would lessen that tendency. No. Well, yeah. we, we do, we do have, you know, like we talked about earlier, Pluto likes to expose the like rotten morally or otherwise underbelly of things. Mm-hmm. And if it's mm-hmm. going into tech land, um, there's a tremendous amount to be exposed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I'm. I'm thinking about that. Um, that documentary that I wish had been even like that had been better than it was. The what was it? The social dilemma? No, something. Like, right. Is that what yeah, it was yeah. called? I the social media one. one. The social yeah. media yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But just thinking about um, with like the exodus of people from Twitter, both forcibly and in part by choice. Like, what stories will be emerging, um, mm-hmm. around 
backdrop stuff where it's like, I can't even get a job in tech, so I'm not going to work in tech. So now I'm going to say this stuff that if I had said it before would have prevented me from getting jobs in tech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I think that's really smart because it's not just Twitter that is shedding employees. Facebook Mm -hmm, laid off a huge number. Like that's, um, yeah. Right. The contraction of tech Mm -hmm. has definitely been a Saturn and Aquarius thing recently, but also to frame the Twitter thing in a different way, thinking about Pluto and Aquarius, like literally the richest man in the world just bought one of the biggest social media platforms Mm -hmm. and is now in control of it and is calling the shots on a day-to-day basis. So even just like that existing, whatever one's opinion is of that positive or negative is like an objective reality now, which is really interesting to think about in -hmm. terms of that symbolism of Pluto and Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also interesting to think about all of these transits with reference to Neptune and Aquarius, the original like ideal of the internet and the ideal Mm. of social media. And like, we don't need any walls, you know, we just need all the people together and everything will be great. And so Saturn's been importing more rules and regulations in that Mm. area. And now I think Pluto's like, Mm. what was rotten about that dream? Not to say that everything was, you know, but I think the aspects that that were or you weren't aware that were will, will be revealed more. It's also interesting thinking about how like uh, Elon's purchase of Twitter happened in this like this last these last gasps of Pluto and Capricorn. And so thinking of it more as um, someone with a totally incomprehensible amount of resources using that to acquire infrastructure, whereas when Pluto enters Aquarius, thinking thinking less about a single person owning and more of the disseminated like you know how how many non like less centralized little social networks have emerged even just since musk's purchase of twitter whether or not right. they're functional and how much more of that decentralization might occur in response to these things as time progresses mhm right yeah, and that was his purchase was like right on that eclipse in Scorpio, um, mm-hmm. which was really so striking. Um, there's also like recently, I don't know if they're going to do it or if this is even possible, but the like Congress is talking about trying to ban TikTok in the US, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it's like whatever their concerns are that that a different country has that that China has ability to influence like entire uh, generation because TikTok skews much younger so it's interesting mm-hmm. thinking about pluto in terms of generations like entire generations of people and social media having the, the ability to influence generations with like facebook being typically older people or skews older people twitter was more middle-aged at a certain point and then tiktok skewing younger um and just the, the different attempts to control or manipulate or influence that in different ways mm-hmm. right yeah, since Pluto is often about power dynamics or fear of what power dynamics might be. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. E- even to the point of like paranoia sometimes, but other right. times like well-founded paranoia about influence and control and manipulation and, and power plays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's our, that's our, <laughs> that's April. That's April. April. So, that was May. That was May. Uh, that was May. Okay, yeah, that was May. I spoke. April, May. All right. Let's transition into June, shall we? Mm-hmm. All right. Here's the planetary alignments calendar for June. Uh, full moon in Sagittarius on the third. Mercury conjunct Uranus on the fourth. Venus moves into Leo and begins the run up to the Venus retrograde period on the fifth of June. 
Then we get Pluto retrograding back into Capricorn on the 11th, the same day Mercury moves into Gemini. Saturn stations retrograde in Pisces on the 17th and gets as far into Pisces as it's going to get during this run. Then we get a new moon in Gemini on the 18th, Sun moves into Cancer on the 21st, Mercury into Cancer on the 26th, and then Neptune stations retrograde on the 30th of June. So here we get the onset, what I like to think of as the beginning of the Venus retrograde, because I think of the, the Venus retrograde as one long extended transit through Leo, basically activating a certain whole sign house in a person's chart and activating a certain sector of a person's chart. So even though it doesn't go retrograde technically in this phase, I feel like we get the sort of onset or the sequence of events that will lead to the retrograde and become intensified then starting to be put into place at this point mo during most of june yeah we mm -hmm. get the lead up and it's uh it's a rowdy lead up because as soon as venus enters leo mars is there and venus is co-present with mars in an increasingly uh, increasingly close basically uh, up until right around the retrograde station and mm -hmm. so yeah the, it's a it's rowdy you know venus mars can be fun mars venus mars can also be really upsetting when mm -hmm. well, it, it opposes pluto also the same day it ingresses mm -hmm. yep oh it goes in right but yeah right so we get a taste of that too yeah mm -hmm. taste of venus opposite pluto in aquarius and leo just before a venus retrograde also conjunct mars mm -hmm. so venus pluto has a sort of obsessive quality when it comes to interpersonal dynamics or or relationships uh and in sort of like intense quality right yeah there's kind of a phantom of the opera vibe with venus pluto mm, yeah that's good yeah thanks yeah it could be positively intensifying sort of um relationship dynamics but it can also be the underhanded power play type of things or the obsession or compulsive it's, activities it's mm -hmm. yeah it's not generally Venus opposite Pluto is not generally favorable, like you wouldn't put it in election. Um, but fortunately, it doesn't last very long, right? Mm -hmm. We just get a quick hit and then yeah. Venus is immediately applying to Jupiter or Venus ruled Jupiter and Taurus. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of yeah. restabilized. And so there, yeah. there, you know, there's like a maybe like a a weird undertone to the first two days, but there mm -hmm. you get that Venus Jupiter energy immediately afterwards, which is, you know, it's the good life, it's good times. Mm -hmm. And then we sort of settle into a month or more of the Venus Mars uh, leading up to the retrograde. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Venus here by like June 20th, 21st gets up to about mid Leo, about 14 degrees of Leo. And it's within four degrees of a conjunction with Mars at 18 Leo at that point. Um, and around this time, Mars squares Uranus shortly after that, towards the end of the month. So Mars gets to 21 Leo on June 25th and squares Uranus at 21 degrees of Taurus. And that really is the probably the most important configuration for the end of June mm -hmm. is Mars and then Venus both squaring Uranus uh, back to back or mm -hmm. one after another. Um, and that's yeah, that's uh, if, <laughs> if there are going to be uh, relational instabilities and shakeups um, that the retrograde is going to deal the retrograde proper is going to deal with, um, they're absolutely going to show up then. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise if you pay attention at all during the end of June. Yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and that Venus Uranus square goes exact July first. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and at the same time, the second half of the month, there's kind of this emotional undertow going on at the same time because Saturn stations for the first time since it's gone into Pisces around seventeenth, eighteenth, and then Neptune stations also in Pisces at the end of the month. So, like the second half of June, it's like, yeah, there's all these sort of combustible things going on that look a lot more active and outward, but there's also this um, sort of emotional, yeah, undertow, like kind of Mm -hmm. um, potentially like a little bit of a melancholic internal mood, um, Mm -hmm. whether related or not related to all of the um, Leo Taurus squares. Yeah, and this month also features like mercury and the sun squaring that neptune which like it's not like a big deal but mm-hmm. i feel like that adds to that sort of moroseness almost mm-hmm. yeah there's just a, there's, getting in things get muddy right the, the the saturn in pisces is kind of an emotional drag or will especially right around the retrograde station you know if you think about you know um uh, a, feck, a feckless young planet in Gemini, just trying to zip around and do stuff, like hitting the square with Saturn, which it'll be do, which planets in Gemini will be doing every year for the next couple. It's like, oh, right, like that underlying melancholy, or you know, I, I like that, but you know, the undertow, as you put it, least it's just it's it's kind of a drag on the like quick, light, not too serious um, Gemini energy. Like there's mm-hmm. there's so. a little bit of poison in the fairy core, right? Like like somebody somebody in the the waltz of the flowers is actually has a sprained ankle and so you can't actually put on the show you want to put on. Right. Like, yeah. I would like to present a counterpoint because one of my favorite aspects of this month is that Jupiter, as Saturn is stationing, comes up to that sextile and sextiles mm. Saturn oh. from seven degrees of Taurus with reception, um, which is a pretty positive um counterbalancing thing and i mm-hmm. think i like the keyword they used diana of mud except it because that's what you know an earth sign and a water sign when you put them together that's what it creates is mud but i i don't think of it in a negative sense but actually more in like a, it creates like a fertile or fecund mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. um area where stuff can grow mm-hmm. um rather than something that's only suppressing things it's like yeah. the extremely uh, biodiverse uh, uh, swamp. Yeah. Right. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. I think it's great for those signs. I just don't think it helps the planets in Gemini because um, mm-hmm. they're not benefiting from the Taurus stuff. Sure. But, but um, yeah, as a combination, it, it it's nice. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some things because we didn't we have some examples of like some people with natal charts that had like Saturn in Pisces and Jupiter in Taurus. What were some oh. of our examples of those? <clears throat> Albert Hoffman was the one that I mentioned. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was a pretty good one. He grew some interesting things in the fecund swamp of his petri dishes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, some of my other people like that were like Chris Rock has Saturn in Pisces and Jupiter in Taurus, Robert Downey Jr. Um, one actually that was notable was was Rodney King had Saturn mm-hmm. in Pisces and Jupiter in Taurus. And one of the phrases he became associated with that I thought was kind of interesting was was when he said, can we all get along basically right. during the riots in um yeah, in the early part of the nineties. Um yeah. So there's some interesting things I think that'll grow in the sort of like fertile soil of Jupiter sextiling Pisces at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. 
Um, I know Nick Dig and Best had done research on Venus retrogrades and some like social conflicts that arise, like issues of injustice being addressed during Venus retrogrades that sometimes come up, especially in the US. And as we're heading into the Venus retrograde, especially that summer, that may be relevant at some point as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We look at that with, uh, in July. Yeah. Right? We get into that. It's when then we've got the station. Mm, I almost wonder if the um, the June 26th Mars Uranus square might be, mm. might link something into the Venus retrograde itself. Yeah. And if that is, uh, you know, that, uh, something that we've said before, it's worth saying again, um, with this being a Venus retrograde in Leo and also having uh, Mars conjoined um, for that first part, um, um, if, if things are distasteful, um, people will not be quiet about them, Mm-mm. right? It is, it's very extroverted. It's very, um, it's very not mumbled under the breath. It's uh, loud. Yeah, Venus, Leo is a very loud sign. That's what I find so interesting about that month, because there's a lot of loudness and extrovertedness going on and combustibleness. And yet, there's the emotional undertow that you probably aren't seeing. And I feel mm. like that's something to be aware of. Like, whatever people are doing or reacting to or mm. whatever during that month, like, know that that's a piece behind it, even if you don't see it. It's like the... It's like the submerged pyramids type of thing. Like there's stuff going on that you don't see. Right. It's making me think about how small children will get really upset about something when what they need is a snack or what they need is a hug. Right. And like that pursuit of connection in an off kilter way that just creates Mm -hmm. conflict rather than addressing the unmet need in some way. So it's like taking that into a personal realm that might be a factor on a personal level is you're seeing somebody act out, but it's acting out from a place of emotional uh, storminess. Exactly. That's not necessarily revealed. Right. Yeah. Um, And last thing I want to mention here with June, with both Saturn making its very first station in Pisces, and so a period of intensification of whatever that Saturn transit is about, and then Neptune only a couple weeks later also stationing in Pisces, I feel like we're getting a real intensification and we're going to get our first real preview of what that Saturn-Neptune co-presence is about, especially in the Pisces sectors of each of our charts. Um, so some Saturn issue, whatever like challenges Saturn is going to raise over the course of the next three years in our charts that we have to overcome or maneuver around, I think will become very evident around the time of that station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, for sure. Absolutely. And I think about when they were going co-present, when they were transiting in Capricorn in the late 80s. And again, it's it's useful to be able to remember some of these things. Remember the felt sense of it, which was like, there was like this slow erosion of like, is the ground I'm standing on, like, is it still there? But like, it was very, very slow process, you know? And so there were, there were notable outer events when it got closer to the exact aspect, but the very slow buildup to it was just like, I feel like the sands are shifting underneath me, but I can't exactly point to where or what. And it's mm-hmm. a, it, it's a sort of vague feeling of unsettledness of like, I, I can tell the structure is changing, but I can't point to what it is yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the foundations are slipping a little bit or that the, 
line between reality and non-reality is becoming a little bit blurrier and some of the all those other saturn neptune themes that we talked about earlier um this is definitely a point in which some of that really comes into focus in mm. late june mm. it's like is the beach smaller like has the water line increased like it's mm -hmm. only been half an inch in the past year but the beach is definitely smaller yeah yeah mm. yeah all right shall we move on to july Michelle, boldly. Boldly. So where no astrologers have gone before into the, the second half of 2023. All right. Here's the planetary alignments calendar for July. On the very first of the month, we get a Sun-Mercury conjunction. Then we get a full moon in Capricorn on the third. Mars departs from Leo and moves into Virgo on the 10th, followed by Mercury ingressing into Leo on the 11th. New moon in Cancer on the 17th. Mars opposes Saturn on the 20th of the month. Then a couple days later, the Sun moves into Leo and Venus stations retrograde in Leo on the same day. Then Mercury conjoins Venus on the 27th, and then itself moves into Virgo on the 28th. So here we get the full onset of the Venus retrograde period in July. All right, let me animate the chart. Oh, right. Okay. So the very first day of the month is the Venus Uranus square. Mm -hmm. So there's this electric kind of combustible uh, sense to it because it's also coming off of the Mars Uranus square at the very beginning of the month. Mm -hmm. And then Venus starts really slowing down. And then we, we have, yeah, we have Venus and Mars sort of break apart where Mars mm -hmm. crosses a sign boundary that Venus won't cross for months and months. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, and the Mars moving into uh, uh, moving into Virgo is its own quite important thing, because yeah. um, it's not. It, it does break apart the conjunction with Venus, which is important, but it's also our first um, our first real alignment, <clears throat> our first tense alignment between Mars and Saturn in Pisces, mm -hmm. right? And as we as the last several years have made very clear. Um, Mars-Saturn conjunctions and oppositions bring a great deal of challenge, um, mm -hmm. both in personal lives and uh, on the news, right? And yeah. so this is the first, like, okay, what, is, what does Saturn and Pisces have for us when it gets stirred up by Mars? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those were, especially in 2020, um, those Mars-Saturn hard aspects kept being these important turning points during the course of the year, and especially during the course of the pandemic, where we kept getting the turning points in the pandemic and like the new chapter beginning every time Mars would form a hard aspect with Saturn, because so much of that began under the Mars-Saturn conjunction that mm -hmm. coincided in like March and April of 2020 with the lockdowns. And then we kept getting like new variants every several months, every time Mars would like square or oppose or conjoin Saturn again. So it's interesting to think about it in that context of, you know, what is the like, not pandemic, but broadly speaking, what is the big story or challenge that arises of Saturn and Pisces and the turning points of that being at those hard aspects between Mars and Saturn? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when it was doing that, you know, when Saturn was in Aquarius, they were all very discrete fixed things, right? Because it was through fixed signs. And so it was like, this is the new variant or this is, you know, this is the new problem. And I noticed actually when Mars got into Gemini, it was like, this is the explosion of like thousands of new variants, right? 
Um, so anyway, we're going to have Mars going through mutable signs every time it hits Saturn. So it's a really different feel, you know, needing to adjust, not necessarily being one problem, but like a multiplicity of things that you need to adjust around. And that's a good point about um, the fixed signs where um, when Saturn was in Aquarius, it was sort of just like literally the next edition of a problem that we already know about, as opposed to mutable signs, which give you new stuff. Sometimes it, it harkens back to old stuff. Sometimes it's new stuff. You, you know, um, mutable signs keep you guessing. There's kind of a juggler, a juggler quality with the mutable signs with Saturn, like Saturn ruling clowns, right? It's like Saturn is kind of juggling in Pisces and... There's something about throwing balls back and forth. And maybe with Mars, it's actually knives and maybe the knives are thrown a little bit too hard. Right. And so it's creating issues that may or may not be about the hands of the person juggling, but the things that are in the surrounding arena, right. Of just like accidentally throwing knives while juggling, hitting audience members. Right. There's that kind of energy to it for me. Mm -hmm. So yeah so the, whatever this mars saturn opposition is about it's really fast it's interesting that it's happening simultaneously as venus is slowing down and stationing retrograde so it seems mm -hmm. to be tied in with that venus retrograde story that's mm -hmm. really getting that's ramping up there in late july yeah and one thing mm -hmm. we can say without being super specific is mars saturn just gives a harsh energy and it's mellow it's there's a little bit of help from jupiter which is friendly with both Mars and Saturn here, but it's still, there's just sort of a, a hardness and a harshness. Um, the, mm -hmm. the mellow is uh, always harsh under Mars-Saturn oppositions. Yeah, so Mars wants to move forward and Saturn wants to hold back and they're in an opposition, so they're pulling in two opposite directions so that sometimes the person, if they're getting hit by that transit, can feel a tension where they're pulled in two different directions. Um, other keywords that came up a lot during the pandemic with Mars-Saturn aspects were like, pressing the gas while pressing the brake at the same time and feeling uh, having a feeling of like frustration as a result of that mm -hmm. yes yeah, right. so we're all mars, frustrated oh go ahead i was just gonna say and mars and virgo is like we gotta handle these details and saturn and pisces is like no you're not seeing the big picture and you're hurting my emotions and i'm going away and <laughs> we're not mm -hmm. getting the thing done <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. Oh, wait, actually, we have somebody here who has like a Mars-Saturn opposition in that axis. We do. We do. I guess it's the reverse, though, because you have Saturn and Virgo, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a fun back and forth. Um, I don't know if I can summarize it neatly, but mm. I'm looking forward to, uh, to next July. I'm sure that'll be fun. Saturn on Mars, Mars on Saturn. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's good times. It's like a noble so, reversal of a planetary configuration. Yeah. So while we're grinding the, the brakes, Venus stations retrograde. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Venus herself hits the brakes, like puts the car into reverse and like starts backing up because there was something in the past that needs to be revisited. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a, there's a tension to that slowing down. So maybe the like process of Venus slowing down and hitting the brakes is much more um of a halting stop uh, or you know than it than it otherwise would be mm. 
I have like this whole new like circus narrative emerging in my head ever <laughs> since I said the juggling thing. And I'm imagining Venus and Leo is um, like the extremely attractive lion tamer who has to go back to a previous stop on the circus route because they fell in love, but it's actually like a love that can't happen. And this is like all complicated. And now what do we do with the lions? Like, <laughs> What Don't if mind you, me. What if, you <laughs> fell, like what if you fell in love with one of the lions and that's your basic issue? Man, that's complicated. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, I, 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 you know, it's worth noting that in the United States, um, political candidates will be um, mm. uh, conducting carnivals and circuses of mm -hmm. uh, a number of varieties and so some of this like loud like obviously loud dramatic stuff will be very visible in you know mm -hmm. in u.s politics mm. yeah um actually speaking of that brings up you know venus retrogrades have also been important because the last one was important for russia and the ukraine actually mm -hmm. um because the the war began under that venus retrograde um, in Capricorn, with Capricorn being so important to Russia, but relevant to this, when I was doing some research, um, the Ukraine independence chart has Venus retrograde at 28 degrees of Leo. So that's mm. the chart for the Ukraine. And Zelensky has Saturn at 28 degrees of Leo. So that's right where Venus is stationing here. That's, that's super relevant. That's fascinating. Yeah, so super potentially important turning point, um, both for Ukraine in general, and as well as for, for Zelensky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, any other Venus retrograde things? One of the things I hope doesn't come up, like I can't imagine it because it would just be too weird, but I know Congress recently passed like the Defense of Marriage Act in order to attempt to um, put in law um, the legalization of same-sex marriage because of course, one full Venus retrograde cycle ago in the summer of 2015 is when the Supreme Court made a ruling that effectively legalized same-sex marriage uh, nationally. But then over the course of the past year, when the Supreme Court struck down um, the law that made abortion legal nationally, that suddenly put into question like other rulings and whether those things would always be there or always stay there. Um, so Congress recently, I think, started to act in order to attempt to put some of that stuff on the books so that any future rulings by the Supreme Court couldn't like invalidate uh, same-sex marriage nationally and make it something that was put back on the states. So I hope that's not something that we revisit during this Venus retrograde. Mm -hmm. Agreed. But yeah. yeah. And even if um, even if the actual ruling um, isn't you know um, overturned or damaged in any way, um, it's Paul. You know, it's it's election year in the United States. You could absolutely have people yelling about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm, right. Yeah. All right. So that's pretty good for July, I believe. Yeah. Right. There's one last note, and like I think this is more interesting for people who are more deeply invested in evolutionary than I am, but the last week of July features um, Pluto exactly square the nodes. So mm. make of well, that what you will. Well, and we got, yeah, we got our nodal ingress in July. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah nodal ingress and then Pluto square the nodes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So well, both of those are really good points. So July 16th and 
17th and 18th, the node switches from, or at least the true node switches from zero Taurus to 29 degrees of Aries. And by this point, Pluto has already retrograded back into 29 Capricorn. So that's that square. Mm -hmm. Nice. And then I see we get a nice Sun-Pluto opposition just a few days later on July 22nd. Yep. Okay, then, so that the Venus retrograde is right next to Lilith. Um, so that's I think that uh, I think that the the loudness is going to be about um, uh, it's going to be about abortion. Mm -hmm. the, the Lilith point was all over the um, the overturning of uh, Roe versus Roe, Wade and Roe, having Roe. that Venus retrograde um, right on it. Like that's what it's going to be about. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, other modern things. I noticed, I wouldn't usually bring this in, but Chiron actually stations the day after Venus stations retrograde. And oh, yeah, I noted that too. Yeah, I mean, just the proximity kind of um, jumped out to me a little bit, you know, because mm -hmm. sometimes Venus stationing retrograde is like, there can be something like, oh, I don't like the way that's going. I don't like this direction that this is turning. Mm -hmm. And Chiron stationing, it, not for everyone, obviously, and it depends on if it's hitting certain points, but it can be a little bit of an ouch. Like, oh, that mm -hmm. hurt, you know? And so I just noted that they were both stationing within 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There it is at 19 degrees of Aries. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. All right. So that is July. So lots of stuff going on. Let's move into August. All right. Here we go with August. Full moon on the first of the month in Aquarius. Then we get a Sun-Venus conjunction on the 13th, which is the halfway point in the Venus retrograde cycle in Leo. Um, a few days later, we get a new moon in Leo on the 16th. Mars opposite Neptune on the 22nd. Sun moves into Virgo on the 23rd. And the same day, Mercury, around that time, Mercury stations retrograde. Mars moves into Libra on the 27th. Uranus stations retrograde on the 28th. And then we get a full moon in Pisces on August 30th. Yeah, and so, you know, part of, uh, a big part of August tone is just Venus retrograde, right? The the Mars-Saturn mm -hmm. uh, is already beginning to depart once we get very far into August. So it's it's there by sign, but it doesn't have the same grinding intensity as when the, the two are very close. Um, and then with the, the Sun in Leo, with Venus in Leo, um, it's, you know, uh, the, the, there's a very clear star to the show. Yeah, for sure. So just animating the chart. Venus retrograde, we see that conjunction as the turning point. And, and usually that starts to be like a, a resolution point where things aren't completely finished, but you start to see some light at the end of the retrograde tunnel or at least some resolution in the site to whatever was thrown up in the air when Venus stationed retrograde. Um, it's, it's re, you know, it's Anana reaches the, the bottom of the underworld and has a confrontation with her sister, Resh Kigal. Um, and, you know, they sort of hash out um, the pleasure and pain of existence. And there's usually a little bit of, there's some equilibrium reached, which we can move forward from. Yeah. Or at least carry back out of the underworld and then eventually move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Venus will 
around that time, around like August 22nd, look, it gets to 15 degrees. It's still retrograde uh, for another 12 days, but it gets to 15 Leo and it squares Jupiter. But that's also about when it's about 15 degrees from the sun. So it's going to make a helical rising at that time. Yeah. And Venus is bright enough that 15 degrees away will be very visible. So Venus emerges from under the beams or emerges from the underworld at that point. Uh, it gets that very helpful or positive affirming square from Jupiter. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's really, uh, I think that's a really nice um, feature to the direct station. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not only is it affirmed by Jupiter, who will generally try to help, um, but it's Jupiter in a Venus ruled sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with reception. Mm-hmm. And we can, if we can contrast that briefly with the way into this retrograde, right, which is um, very upset, very raw, um, like very unstable, you know, Mars, Uranus, all of that. Um, and then with the Mars Saturn in, during the first part, like that's really rough. The way down is um, considerably, uh, considerably less pleasant than what emerges through the process. What emerges from the process is... Um, you know, um, significantly more stable and mm -hmm. pleasant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and more positive. Mm -hmm. um, there is, though, a little bit of tension at this point in the month, even though we're getting some resolution of the Venus retrograde story. By the time we get to late August, Mercury slows down and it stations retrograde at 21 Virgo around August 23rd and 24th, and it's conjoining Mars within about six degrees at that point, which is at 27 degrees of Virgo. So we've had other types of Mercury retrograde stories so far this year. This one has a Mercury conjunct Mars flavor, which is mm -hmm. usually more of a, you know, um, bad words or like curse words or, or like mm -hmm. a Mercury Mars thing. Um, it's sometimes the breaking of something technical or the severing or separating of something technical. Since it's happening in Virgo, it has this additional like technical component to it, I think. Mm -hmm. And Mercury and Mars are going to be co-present most of the month. So it's kind of like, the, even though they don't catch up and make an exact conjunction. So it's kind of like um, like nitpicking words or like, you know, harsh criticism is pretty good yeah. for Mercury and Mars and Virgo. Now, it's great to use that for positive effect, like use it for editing, use it for like constructive cutting out of words um, mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, interpersonally, it can be a little bit like harsh criticism or nitpicking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this could also be the like technological technical things breaking, like the hard drive crashing or the car, you know, having a part that breaks or something like that at the beginning of a retrograde and that classic version of a Mercury retrograde. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what's 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 interesting is that um, they separate only a couple days into the retrograde. Mars moves on to Libra. Mercury's headed back, and so. Um, is somewhat parallel to the Venus retrograde. The the like the lead up to it is actually considerably more or is pretty harsh. Whereas the once it gets going, it is what it is. The rearrangements need to happen. Um, but that Mars that Mars Mercury energy won't be there for most of the retrograde. But mm -hmm. you know, it's gonna feel people are gonna start asking us whether Mercury is retrograde like two weeks before it is because of that Mercury Mars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's going to be like also an, an abruptness, a sharpness to the Mercury retrograde problems at the beginning of the Mercury retrograde, but a lot of that will be removed relatively early on when Mars goes into Libra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm being reminded of my favorite um, 
like Mars in a Mercury sign or Mercury in a Mars sign thing to do or to whatever, which is if you write down the word swords and you put a parentheses around the first S and then being judicious about how you choose to use your words and your swords, right? Like that, um, the necessity of having a sharp one ready when you need them, but also not dispensing them when you don't need to. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the, even the, um, you know, just the uttering of certain words is a threat um, and changes the dynamic just as just unsheathing the sword. You don't even have to swing a sword at someone to change mm -hmm. the dynamic. Mm -hmm. Just uh, making it clear that you have one. Right. The, that moment can of go like, pretty far. Mm -hmm. The like shink. Yeah. 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 So one of the things I notice with Mercury stationing here in later Virgo, of course, is that it's going to be opposing Neptune. So maybe being careful where you swing your sword um, and why, so as not to have like confusion surrounding it could be really important. Yeah. Don't tilt right. it windmills. Yeah. Or I know you in a prep meeting, you mentioned like the fog of war. And mm -hmm. I, I think that came up at one point uh, like a year or two ago in one of the transits that happened with Neptune. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this, that's definitely relevant again here. If just like, um, the sensation of wanting to fight is not the same as the need to fight. Yeah. Don't, mm -hmm. don't go stabbing waterfalls. Please do the rivers <laughs> and lakes that you're used to. Is that a TL TLC song? Are you yeah. like, it's it's not, yeah. yeah, yeah, verbatim. I, verbatim. I, I have some TLC stories that I will tell you later that relate to my Saturn and Pisces transits. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. I look forward to that. All right, we're back after a little bit of a break, and we're going to resume with September. But before we get there, we have to talk about the full moon at the end of August, which is a full moon in Pisces. And that is a full moon that, Austin, you are particularly interested in. Yeah, uh, and so this full moon, uh, there's always a full moon, or almost always a full moon in Pisces around this time of year. But this time, it's pretty much right on top of Saturn. And so usually the Pisces moon is you know, a moment of um, uh, enchanted or drunken um, revelry or fantasy amidst, a, you know, a very detail-oriented Virgo season. Um, but this year and for the next couple, these full moons in Pisces will be with Saturn, right? And so the the constriction, the constraint, the, um, uh, as you put it earlier, Lisa, the, the emotional undertow, the perhaps a feeling of underlying melancholy um, will be part of this full moon. And so it's, I, I wanted to mention it because it's, it, it really shows the tonal shift to how Pisces feels now or how it's going to feel at that time and for a while. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting too, that the full moon is exactly on the degree where Saturn stationed for the first time in Pisces in June. It's at seven Pisces. Mm, yeah, that's mm -hmm. a good point. Mm. Yeah, so it's really highlighting that degree and highlighting the early degrees of Pisces and shedding a spotlight on Saturn in Pisces and whatever that transit is about for everybody, especially if that's hitting uh, personal planets in people's birth charts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and although that Saturnian node, you know, is important and we'll feel it, it does have a nice configuration to that to Jupiter and Taurus. It's not, um, it's not um, uh, like an epically awful configuration, but the, the weight of Saturn is really apparent there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's like separating from Saturn, but as soon as the full moon goes exact, it then applies to that sextile with Jupiter. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So, so that maybe seems- it's a little bit of putting some of the Saturn stuff a little bit in the rear view mirror and at least heading towards Jupiter. Yeah, it, it benefiting from that same sort of uh, like enrichment that uh, we talked about Jupiter and Taurus being able to provide for Saturn and Pisces, right? That it, it's not just like soggy and sad. There's like, you know, you can grow stuff in that in that soggy and sad, right? That, that there's a, a richness to the soil, mm-hmm. right? It feels like a like a sober, like a sobering cry fest versus a disorienting cry fest mm-hmm. right like saturn's presence um almost like the uh the emotional over like the emotional cup overflowing a bit but from a place of somebody throwing rocks in your cup like that's not quite what i mean but there's something there of um like a like reality displacing mm-hmm something yes. and that displacement being the cause of the mm, emotional context the emotional experience mm-hmm. yeah mm. for sure all right i think that's a good transition point to take us into september mm-hmm. so we open september with two important planetary stations that we've talked about a few times already up to this point which is venus stations direct in leo on the 3rd of September, and the next day Jupiter stations retrograde in Taurus on the 6th of September. Then a couple days later, we get the halfway point in the Mercury retrograde when Mercury conjoins the Sun, and then we start to see some resolution of the Mercury retrograde issues that began a little bit earlier. We get a new Moon in Virgo on the 14th, Mercury stations direct and ends its retrograde period on the 15th of September. The Sun moves into Libra on the 23rd, And then we get a full moon in Aries on the 29th. So the big story this month is Venus ending the retrograde and squaring Jupiter um, around the same time. And there being potentially some sort of positive resolution at this point or some sort of high note at the end of the retrograde period. Mm -hmm. I really like that Venus stations direct and then towards mid-month, Venus squares Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it feels much more positive coming out of the Venus retrograde. There's something to yeah. look forward to, like that sensation mm-hmm. of looking forward to. Um, For sure. Even this Mercury retrograde conjunction with the Sun happens, um, you know, in a trine with Jupiter. So mm-hmm. it seems like there's even like some resolution coming there in the middle of the Mercury retrograde as well. Mm-hmm. And we we have a dynamic there where we've got two we've got the two benefics and fixed signs for a while, mm-hmm. and it's you know and now it's a it's it's a direct Venus, um, mm-hmm. a direct benefic, and so you know some of that um, some of uh, some of some of uh, some of that help for fixed signs uh, arrives there right like no malefics on the axis sure Uranus is there but you've got both benefics for a while. Um, totally functional in two of the four fixed signs. Yeah, yeah and only one one eclipse left in the fixed signs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. One thing I find really interesting about September too is that um, Mercury is the only planet in domicile all month, um, and it's retrograde, but for like the first half, but direct for the second half, and so there's something. Um, 
<laughs> my brains are starting to fall out of my head. I mean, we've only been doing this for six <laughs> uh, six hours today, so I, don't, I, I, I personally can't relate to that. But um, um, yeah, no, but it just it it feels very um, interesting whenever there's a month where there's really only one planet that's solidly in domicile for the entire month, especially when it's Mercury, since Mercury usually zips through things. Um, and I don't know. I just it feels notable. I don't have smart words in the moment yeah, to say about no, it. <laughs> no, it's Mercury. Look at this. September 24th. It's like Mercury is in its own sign of Virgo, where it's at its most analytical and ability to focus on minor details and communicate them effectively. And it's trining Jupiter at 14 degrees of Taurus. Then it gets a nice trine with Uranus shortly after mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah, this is Mercury at his most robust, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mer when, once Mercury comes out of the retrograde, it's a really enviable Mercury position. Mm -hmm. All right, I think that brings us. Oh, continue. I think that brings us into October, essentially, right? We should probably mention that Mars moves into Libra. Mm -hmm. All right, let's back up all the way to actually the late late august when that happens on the 26th and 27th and mars. so as september begins mars is in libra mm -hmm. yeah um it's interesting it's not really like aspecting anything hardly uh, by hard aspect mm -hmm. as it's moving through that sign and because all the outer planets um like jupiter and uranus and saturn are in pisces and taurus they're all in aversion to it it will eventually hit that Pluto square at the very end of the cardinal sign. Yeah, it's and, uh, really towards the end of September when it's coming up on the square with Pluto and it's coming up on conjunction with the tail of the dragon that it's going to start acting up. You know, the Mars um, uh, Mars uh, south node conjunctions are often very intense. And then when you add Pluto, um, that's that's a th there's a sharper sting there. You know, there's a um, uh, there's a, a convention of representing the dragon's tail as being stingered like a scorpion in some of the, the Arabic works um, that I, I think that with Mars conjoined in square Pluto, you see you see a little bit of that sting there. Mm -hmm. um, and before we even get there, we get a nice flowing uh, sextile between Venus, direct Venus sextiling Mars in Libra here in the later part of September, um, which is interesting just as a contrast with the beginning of the retrograde where we had that conjunction where things were kind of tense in Leo. Mm -hmm. And around that time, we have the third of the three squares between Venus and Uranus. Yeah, right there around the 28th and 29th. Mm -hmm. All right. And then we see Mars hit the south node early in October here at 24 degrees of Libra. And then it squares Pluto here on October 8th from 27 Libra to 27 Capricorn. Mm -hmm. and I feel and like that, that Mars South node conjunction is kind of setting up that first eclipse in Libra that'll happen this month as well. Yeah. And it also rules the the full moon in, um, in Aries that we, we just popped by. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's that full moon on September 28th and 29th. 
So that's that's pretty spicy. <laughs> the full moon in Aries is always uh, is rarely shy with the chili powder, um, but with that, with uh, Mars, uh, Mars is getting that nice, nice sextile from Venus, but also conjoining the South Node and with uh, the square to Pluto coming up and ruling the, <clears throat> excuse me, ruling the uh, the full moon in Aries, which is not an eclipse. But if it were three days later, would start being eclipsed. Um, there, there's definitely, there's definitely, and this is Mars and Libra is very when when activated, um, attacks with vicious shade. Um, you know, it's a it's a social Mars, but that doesn't mean that there are you know there aren't uh, words and swords. Um, and so yeah, there, there there's there's a little there's an edge to that full moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So immediately after that, I believe that takes us into the month of October. This is when we enter into eclipse season again. So October, Mercury goes into Libra on the 4th. Mars squares Pluto on the 8th, the same day that Venus goes into Virgo. Pluto stations direct in Capricorn on the 10th. Mars into Scorpio on the 12th. Uh, Eclipse in Libra new moon eclipse, the solar eclipse in Libra on the 14th. Then the sun conjoins Mercury on the 20th. Mercury and the sun go into Scorpio on the 22nd and 23rd, respectively. And then we get our second lunation and eclipse of the month, which is a lunar eclipse in the sign of Taurus on the 28th of October. All right. Mm -hmm. So Pluto stationing direct, that's... um. That's also the closest that we get to the final sort of um, Pluto return of the U.S., I think, at this point, right, Lisa? Yes, it's about half degree past, so it's essentially exact again. Um, so you'll have, I'm sure, more of those um, fun, you know, uh, underworld things coming up to be reviewed at that time. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, for anyone, even... You know, yes, with the U.S. Pluto return, but but also for everyone. You know, Pluto is getting very, very late in Capricorn, and so this is this is like the you know the last lap, more or less, this year, next year. But it's very late. Um, <clears throat> so any of those Pluto and Capricorn themes are really developed at this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is taking it back to like the founding of the United States and the founding of the like the Declaration of Independence and all of that. And mm-hmm. some of the early like foundations of the country being revisited. Yeah. Yes, checking, the, go ahead. I was just going to say checking in on the uh, the bones of the institutions that built the nation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, seeing the rot <laughs> and right. trying to get rid of the termites and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know last year I was talking a little bit about you know, the um, the founding of the U.S. being breaking away from monarchy. So it, it revisits those themes. Like, are we going to be a democracy? Are we a democracy currently? You know, we are a backsliding democracy, I last I heard. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, just revisiting all of that. Like, mm-hmm. how much do we prioritize people in charge, no matter how much they abuse the system for the rest of us? Or are we going to do anything about that? That's very Pluto mm-hmm. and Capricorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of course, and the Mars being square at right as it stations makes it emphasizes that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't. Uh, 
it ensures that it, and it's also October in an election year. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, October looks increasingly like a knife fight. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that happens uh, before the eclipse. And then we get a pair of eclipses and we get, you know, we get Mars going from, you know, kind of a, a shady and activated um, and potentially poisonous position at the, in the end of Libra, just straight into Scorpio. Mm-hmm. Right where where Mars is very mm-hmm. strong, mm-hmm. and is happy, you know, uh, is happy to do battle, to mm-hmm. lock claws, yeah, strategic attacks and things like that. You know, one thing that's interesting thinking about it being the American election season, um, right? With Which, those ec- over the next year from that point, right? Yeah. Exactly, like entering into that, but like with those eclipses, um happening in Venus signs, but ruled by a Virgo in Venus and thinking about, um, the, how much room there is to nitpick other people's actions. Um, and like the mm-hmm. sort of, mm, I don't, I don't want to besmirch Virgo and Venuses because there are many of them who I admire. Um, you know, but there's, there is something about the, the way that a Virgo Venus can say, I am disappointed is vastly more like marrow wounding than anyone else saying that same thing. Um, and so thinking about how the, um, how the conversations and the, pundit like the pundit pulpits like how that goes and how um intensely people will be listening for reasons to critique mm-hmm. as part of that so. mm. yeah for sure um and that brings us right into this eclipse in libra so it's at 21 degrees of libra this is the first eclipse in this sign so it's the start of a major series of eclipses in Libra that will go through 2024. Um, and just that theme of major beginnings and major endings when it comes to that sector of everybody's birth chart. Um, and yeah, I'm still getting over the eclipses from last year and just seeing how that indicated major changes for a lot of the people with fixed signs uh, when we went into some of those eclipses. And now that is going to fully shift into the the Aries Libra axis at this point. Mm-hmm. So, um, major endings, major beginnings. Also, just like things being up in the air is is a theme we've talked about previously about previous eclipses. So that's going to be another thing that's in the air most of October during eclipse season. Um, are there any other major? I mean, major rises and major falls was the major thing. Like seeing people come into prominence previously who weren't prominent, or seeing people who were prominent suffering a sudden fall um, is another theme. I think that we've seen a lot lately with eclipses. Yeah, and this is um, you know this is uh, so the eclipse in Libra with the eclipse in Libra. We now have one eclipse in Aries, 
and one eclipse in Libra. So we've actually started the eclipses in that pair of signs, right? Which mm -hmm. runs for about a year and a half at a time. So uh, at this point, both sides of that will be fully introduced. Whereas we only got half of it um, during the, the the second quarter, but this is the other half. And now we can begin that, that process, the South Node in Libra, North Node in Aries. Uh, process and of course we have to finish up the uh the taurus scorpio with the very last one in uh on that axis and so this is sort of you know this is the the actual the actual completion of the taurus scorpio cycle and the full beginning of the aries libra cycle yeah i love that because it's like you're you take one step into the aries libra axis in april with that first eclipse in aries and then the second and final step into that sphere is taken in October with the Libra eclipse, whereas with the others, it's like you're in the process of stepping out of that series with Taurus and Scorpio that completes in October in, in Taurus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, Having so one, one foot in and one and then taking the other foot in versus like one foot out and then taking the other foot out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get the like full changeover for the first time in October. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can think back to approximately nine years prior, um, those houses will be churned up again in terms of beginnings and endings. That was the last time we had the nodes in the opposite signs um, about nine years ago. Mm. All right, so um, let me put the eclipse back on the screen here. Libra eclipse, 21 Libra. One thing that's interesting about this is that it is... Um, like in the lead up to the Mercury Kazemi conjoined the South Node, right? So there's sort of this continuation of the eclipse in a specifically mercurial way over the mm. preceding days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all point. of yeah, and all that's uh, pretty tightly squared. That's uh, or that Pluto. Mm -hmm. um so can so continuing to to hammer those uh like the those end of pluto and capricorn themes mm -hmm. mm. yeah yeah absolutely it's making me think about um justice system revelations it, it's very mm -hmm. like institutional mm -hmm. yeah like um even just thinking about the mercury pluto dynamics with revelations over time and adding the south node um from like it within an eclipse season um the the reverse of obscuring almost being a part of it or maybe potentially that being the initiation of things that come to light later maybe by the time of the next eclipse season yeah well in the uh, the mm -hmm. south node you know uh, south node and south node eclipse eclipses will stir up the ghosts of things the mm. things that you know we talk about um sometimes we talk about letting go with the south node but often in order to for something to be resolved where it actually can fade away uh, something you know that we have to revisit it and mm -hmm. is this is the very first eclipse in libra on the south node it's more about it's probably gonna be more about stirring up the ghosts that you know maybe we'll we'll eventually find their way to the next life but need to some things need to be unfucked first yeah, opening the closet door that's full of skeletons and getting that whiff of musty skeleton air. Yeah, of the unquiet yeah. dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
speaking of the unquiet dead, that brings us into the next eclipse, which is taking place like right before Halloween, Mm -hmm. uh, where we get this lovely Taurus eclipse, which is on the one hand, uh, conjunct Jupiter at 11 degrees of Taurus while the moon itself goes exact at five Taurus. But there's this very tight Mercury-Mars conjunction in Scorpio that's happening at the same time opposite to that at 10 degrees and 11 degrees of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. So it, this eclipse has a real Mercury conjunct Mars uh, flair to it or signature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mercury conjunct Mars can be as we've said earlier, can be like uh, combative words or aggressive communication. Um, it can also be very piercing because since it's happening in Scorpio at the same time. Mm -hmm. What are some other keywords for that? Yeah, it's combative. It's um, could be vicious with the conjunction being in Scorpio, but it really like the, 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 these things in combination, the Mercury, Mars opposite Jupiter, um, and the uh, lunar eclipse on top of Jupiter really challenge what peace, stability, and I don't know, extra, uh, extra comfortable garments that Jupiter and Taurus has been trying to provide all year, like trying to help try to stabilize, try to cushion things. Um, and this, you know, this, <clears throat> this, this eclipse in particular is a moment where it's as if Jupiter wasn't helping or the helps, mm -hmm. um, not enough. Right. It feels like resentment somehow to me, mm -hmm. like as I'm, as I'm thinking about it, like something about, um, that's all well and good for you. Yeah. Like that kind of energy. It's like yeah. cutting words mm -hmm. in Scorpio. And cut, cutting people down to size. Like even thinking about that being an opposition to Jupiter who mm -hmm. and like an exalted but eclipsed moon of that sort of mm, excessive comfort being face to face with the relative austerity uh, like almost military militant austerity that sometimes Scorpio can have. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Well, on a good, good note, that's going to be the final eclipse of the fixed sign series and like whatever it was that began way back in late 2001 with that first eclipse in Scorpio, um, that series of changes that people have been going through th in that part of their life should be over after this point. And sometimes I mean, eclipse. Kind of. 2021, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What did yeah, I say? Okay. 2001. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember watching that eclipse in late 2021 and just being the opening of that series. And depending on where it was falling in different people's charts, that theme of like major beginnings and major endings. Like if it was in a fourth house, sometimes people moved or relocated. So it was like the end of living in one, one place and then starting to live in another. Or if that eclipse was in like the seventh house, it could have been like the end of one major relationship and the start of another or vice versa. Um, but whatever it is, that series of changes and major beginnings and major endings comes to full completion at this point. Well, it's really interesting to me that this is the last Taurus eclipse, but it still proceeds by about six months, uh, the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Taurus next spring. Mm -hmm. And so it's like there's been multiple wild cards going on in the Taurus area of the chart, but now there's just going to be one wild card, right? Like not two. Um, so it's like there's still potential for change and unexpectedness in that area, but it's 
it's less it feels less like completely out of your control uh and faded and more like okay what do you want to do now with this fresh ground that's been you know plowed yeah i think uh, i think part of the way that that's gonna feel and play out is you know uranus has been there since 2018 and now it's now all that uh after this point the only thing bearing on it is jupiter which helps confirm whatever you know uranus is doing so what i think that's going to be like oh i can finally make those changes that i've been meaning to like in a constructive mm -hmm. and right. intentional way like i would i would really wanting to do this but i had to deal with that and this couldn't change until this thing was over and it's sort of like okay now i can just make the changes mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. now i have the freedom to do this mm -hmm. um because there was when uranus ingressed i noticed with a lot of like taurus rising people that there was a real like liberation feel of like freeing oneself from past obligations and things like that and doing something radically different but um yeah things have been so much up in the air with some of the scorpio taurus eclipses in a more chaotic sense it'll be interesting to see jupiter being able to um help make things more stable and sort of uh confirm things in, in a way that's a little bit smoother than before yeah, and there was, you know, the Saturn squaring Uranus. Saturn was like, no, you can't change. You've got, you've got to do this. You've got these responsibilities, not until X, Y, and Z. And so Saturn's off, you know, writing poetry um, in Pisces now. So, right. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's good. And that takes us into the following month into November. Mm -hmm. So, November. Saturn, which has been retrograde for a few months now in Pisces, stations direct in at zero degrees of Pisces on November 4th. Then Venus goes into Libra on the 8th. Mercury goes into Sagittarius on the 10th. There's a Mars-Uranus opposition on the 11th. Then we get a new moon in Scorpio, which is not an eclipse for the first time in quite a while, on the 13th. Then there's a Sun-Mars conjunction on the 18th. The Sun moves into Sagittarius on the 22nd. Mars into Sag on the 24th, which then squares Saturn and Pisces on the 25th, and then we get a full moon in Gemini on the 27th. All right, so big story this month is another intensification of Saturn and Pisces, the, the second station essentially that we've ever gotten in Pisces during this run. So we get an intensification of focus of whatever that transit is about, and especially if people have planets in early mutable signs, an intensification and a return to a transit, an exact transit from earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. We also sort of have the um, the ingress Venus into its own sign of Libra. We have some social niceties <laughs> back in terms of interpersonal um, experiences. We don't have you know, the overly critical <coughs> and then opposite Saturn Venus, which we had just before that. Um, so Venus yeah. gets free of the opposition with Saturn and is happy in its own sign. So a lot more yeah. of the pleasantries with other people. And a few days into that, Mercury moves into Sagittarius. So we have a nice um, Mercury-Venus sextile with mm. Venus in a happy mm. place. Um, November 12th. But, yeah. So once, once we get going on that, like those two hold... Um, those two hold that for several weeks, um, and that's mm -hmm. nice. Uh, like you know, a return, uh, a return to decorum, or at least like not knife fighting. This is like I didn't mean I didn't mean what I said when Venus was in Virgo, All right? Or when Mercury mm -hmm. was conjunct Mars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. All right, I see that aspect holding most of the middle part of November. Mercury sextile Venus. 
but I mean, it is worth noting that um, part of the reason we like that that Venus Mercury thing is that we have, um, you know, we still have Sun and Mars and Scorpio um, for quite a bit of the month, and it, that it, there's just the the level of like how do I put this? It's like a uh, it's just like a coal, um, even at like a, a like a, a coal that's still carrying fire. Even if uh, even if nothing is on fire at the time, it's just carrying around that coal. Like that's a that's a the that's a very intense, fixed, <clears throat> strong, but uh, also kind of dangerous um, energy. It's just like things could catch back on fire, right? Because the coal is right there. Mm -hmm. um and it's you know it's a, it, it is a resetting of the mars cycle with right. a with a conjunction between the two and so it does speak to an intense um an intense cycle to come right yeah. and there's the fact that the new moon in scorpio is conjunct mars and opposite uranus so maybe yeah. that coal actually does catch fire yeah, yeah. mars uranus opposition is kind of tense mm-hmm Here we go. So new moon at 20 Scorpio on November 13th. And that's opposite to Uranus at 21 Taurus. So Mars Uranus can be unexpected actions, um, unexpected accidents, sometimes the need to make like bold, decisive actions without much forethought, which can sometimes be good or sometimes be bad. Mm -hmm. yeah, Mars and Mars Uranus is um for good, bad, and all that in between, it is a very destructive uh, pairing. Mm -hmm. Can be, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all I feel right. like there's there's also something interesting about this coming on the heels of so much Mars and Scorpio, where outward, like outwardly, it might appear that someone is making a rash or unconsidered decision, um, but it's actually been stewing for quite some time. It's just the external mm. manifestation or the external expression is particularly disruptive or surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other major tense aspect this month that occurs after that is when Mars moves into Sagittarius uh, by November 24th, 25th, it immediately squares Saturn at zero degrees of Pisces. Mm -hmm. And un unfortunately, we have a full moon that turns that into a T-square. Mm -hmm. Nice. There we go. So full moon in Gemini at four degrees of Gemini. So wow. yeah, it's Mars, Saturn, Sun, and Moon. So Mars is inside of both lunations this month. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So there's a lot of, it's really fiery month um, with some like contention. Mars is sometimes fights, sometimes like competitions or contests. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's is frustrated there... action going on right there too with that yeah. um, full moon with the Mars Saturn square. Mm -hmm. Right. That, um, but Mars is in the superior position, so it's able to like push a little bit more against Saturn and get the upper hand. So it's like the impulse to like push the gas button is potentially like overwhelming the restraint button. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it, it's it doesn't make it easy for Mars, right? It's mm -hmm. like the uh, it's like those those strongman competitions where somebody will be like dragging a bus. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, well, it's amazing that you're able to make any progress, but um, that's a lot of that's a lot of effort for, you know, going two miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
All right. So those are the major notes of November. I believe that brings us to our final month of the, the year. Oh, I did want to make one last note about November um, that I think is interesting, like the return of that concept of the fog of war emerging with um, Mars and the Mars Kazemi trine Neptune. Mm, okay. Right. That's the other thing that I was like, mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that since the trine, uh, perhaps that's like something positive or flowing about being able to use the fog of something in a way that's mm -hmm. strategic or, or effective. Yeah. It's around November 17th. Okay. Let's transition into December. Here's the alignments calendar. First day of the month, we get Mercury going into Capricorn, then Venus into Scorpio on the 4th, Neptune direct on the 6th, New Moon and Sag on the 12th. Mercury stations retrograde for the final time this year on the 13th. Sun into Capricorn on the 21st. Sun-Mercury conjunction um, in that sign on the 22nd. Mercury retrogrades back into Sagittarius for its only trip retrograde through a fire sign this year. Then we get a full moon in Cancer on the 26th. Retrograde Mercury conjoins Mars on the 27th. Venus into Sag on the 29th and Jupiter stations direct on the 30th of December, right before New Year's. Mm -hmm. It's striking to me that the very end of December, which is the very end of the whole year, looks very jolly, but like everything up to that is a little like smoldery, it's like Venus and Scorpio mm -hmm. most of the month. Then all of a sudden at the very end, Venus goes into Sag and then Jupiter stations direct. Um, it's just like a really nice one to kind of a bountiful um, sort of upbeat action. And then on the 1st of 2024, Mercury also stations direct. So there is that sort of like uh, moving forward energy, even if it's not fully captured in, uh, in 2023. Mm -hmm. one, one final note about the, uh, the Venus-Jupiter. Um, Venus in Sagittarius and Jupiter in... Taurus are also both in mutual reception, so that mm -hmm. that helps combine the the two goods. You know that that's the uh, the vanilla chocolate swirl where you get mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of sort of like seething and before that, <laughs> like Venus and Scorpio is <laughs> like the the like sexy brooding lover who you wish would brood a little less. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the I mean, better in theory than practice right? uh, relationship. And we also have Mercury. Um, uh, once Mercury retrogrades back into Sagittarius, we have we have our, our good friend, the Mercury-Mars conjunction, uh, again, for swords. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Unsheathed during, swords. During, during, the during the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Retrograde yeah. Mercury at 28 Sag, retrograding back into Mars, and then Moon opposes it. Moon actually opposes Mars on Christmas, it looks like. Yeah, and there's also on the 26th, there's a retrograde Mercury squared Neptune. So also right around times where people are likely to be holiday hanging. Makes me think of like getting in an argument or, um, you know, getting in a fight with somebody because you misunderstood something or you made a mistake. And that, that awkward scenario that people run into of like saying something harmful or hurtful uh but having it be 
misdirected due to like a sort of similar situation with the fog of war type thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Or saying something completely innocuous and literally having the other person hear different words than the ones that came out of your mouth. And right. so the fight is about something you actually did not say, but that someone legitimately heard. <laughs> right? right. Fights of translation. Take, take it back. I, I can't. I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. It's like I take back the thing that I didn't say because it hurt you, but you should know I didn't say it. Right. It's just I'm, like I'm that. Really sorry I did. I'm really sorry I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's also a Venus Uranus opposition um, on the 21st, mm -hmm. which is interesting. You know what it reminds me of? I mean, not not just like sudden unexpected things with regard to relationships just before holidays, but you know those movies that are like you you go back to your small town and then there's like this sudden crush from the past. <laughs> like it reminds mm -hmm. me of that. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually a really bad news bears crush, but <laughs> it influences the rest of your time at home. Right. It's like you're uh, avoiding your family by trying to hang out with somebody who was bad news 20 years ago and is still bad news. <laughs> yeah, I get that emphasized more with the Mercury retrograde happening at the same time in the sense of looking back at something. Mm -hmm. um, well, I will say that I like the I like the the first part of Venus and Scorpio when it's in a tight opposition with Jupiter. Yeah. That can be that can be pleasantly debauched. Um, you know, it may not be productive or healthy, um, but it could at least be fun. There is also the fact that, like at this at this point with Saturn and Pisces, planets moving through water signs are going to experience the trine with Saturn, which mm -hmm. I think, especially for Venus in. In Scorpio, there's something um, supportive about that interaction, like sort of um, the reminder that like, yes, you could obsess about that thing that makes you feel terrible, but you could also obsess about this thing that would at least be practical for you to obsess about, right? Um, that kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited mm -hmm. for water sign trines with Saturn, so. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the benefit of productive obsessions. Yeah, productive obsessions, I think, would maybe be one way to... I love that phrase, actually, for the Saturn-Venus trine. Well, Pretty and sure. also, you know, Saturn in Pisces being, like we were talking a while earlier about um, how do you put containers around this, like, boundless emotional energy? And so mm -hmm. maybe you've started to learn how to put some containers in place. And so the mm -hmm. Venus trine Saturn is like, oh, here, this is what I'm going to do with that. I'm not going to brood all day, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, this is, like, from from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. are my obsession hours. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's more like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., let's be real. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So that means we end the year sort of with the Mercury retrograde, but it's it's about to be direct. And then Ju Jupiter is also stationing direct at the end of the year as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it's mm -hmm. also worth pointing out that Mars and Neptune will square each other at the end of the year, too. I don't know if we already mentioned that. I don't mm. think so. Pull that up. I'm deliberately working very hard to stop forgetting Neptune, so... Yeah, well, that, that was part of the Mercury-Mars conjunction, because mm -hmm. that happens at the same time as square Neptune. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Go. All right. That kind of brings us to the end of our major transits for 2023, honestly. Mm -hmm. Wild.
All right, my friends, it has been a long journey. Yeah, I definitely feel like I've been through a time warp. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, we started this conversation last week, right? (laughs) Right. It's a couple days ago, at least. Yeah. All right. This was amazing. Uh, We had big plans for this this episode, this forecast we always do. We're always very ambitious. This is definitely one of our most ambitious forecasts ever. And I think we we were all able to rise to the occasion. Uh, Thank you all for joining me for this today. This was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good to talk with you all. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I want to ask each of you uh, what you're up to this year. Austin, what do you have coming up in 2023? Okay. Well, I will be teaching. I will, um, I will be doing enrollment for my um, uh, go at your own pace year one program once a quarter. My year two and year three programs both begin in April. Um, let's see, I will, and I'm going to hold myself to this, um, uh, I will have the second edition of 36 Faces complete with all new illustrations, a ton of new material, editable material out um, by the halfway point of this coming year. I will be speaking at Nor- at the Northwestern Astrology Conference, NORWAC, in May. And um as far as my work with sphere and sundry goes uh right now and hopefully it'll last a little longer um there's a beautiful jupiter and pisces series out it's called butter ocean it's jupiter and pisces with uh just a hint of venus and cancer um and then at an at a, a to be announced point in the in the year to come, uh, Strand Sundry's Top Secret Manhattan Project will be unleashed on the public. So you know, gird your loins and keep your eyes peeled. Brilliant. And that's mm-hmm. spherensundry.com and austincopic.com, right? Yep. Awesome. Uh, Diana, what do you got coming up? Um, at this point, the things that I have in process are not yet at the point where I can talk about them. Um, But I will be continuing to see clients and will probably be doing some kind of teachy stuff. Um, Yeah. I don't like if, if people want to be informed of things, whenever things actually emerge, they will want to be on my newsletter, which you can join by going to dianaroseharper.com and scrolling to the bottom of literally any page. Awesome. Cool. Lisa, what do you have coming up in 2023? Um, in late February, February 25th, I'll be giving a kind of leisurely introduction to zodiacal releasing lecture for Astrology Niagara, which is online, so anyone can join from anywhere in the world. Um, It's going to be a good two and a half hour chunk so that there's plenty of time for questions. So if you've been wanting to learn about that technique but haven't gotten into it yet, um, that's a good option. I'll also be giving two lectures at NORWAC in late May. Um, I do have a bunch of lecture recordings from previous conferences on my website that people can check out. And what else? Uh, We'll be continuing to find and uh, discuss the monthly elections every month here with the Auspicious Elections podcast. And um, finally, um, I am not quite back to consultations, but I'm really looking forward to getting back to them. Been quite interrupted by uh, family emergencies on and off for quite a while here. So really looking forward to getting back to that. Um, Not open 
open for new ones yet, but if you go to the bottom of my front, front page of my website, um, you can join the mailing list, and uh, that's the only place I will announce when I have new openings available. Cool. And your website is lisashime.com? It is. Awesome. Uh, as for myself, I recently launched a new course on birth chart rectification and how to find your birth time if it's unknown or uncertain with Patrick Watson. I'm also working on a new Hori course with Rob Bailey that we're planning on launching in 2023, and we already have a preview version of it up that's available now. Uh, and if people sign up now, they get grandfathered into the new course before we raise the price. Um, I'm also going to focus on continuing to expand my Hellenistic Astrology course, where I teach people how to read birth charts using the original system of Western astrology. So you can find out more about that at courses.theastrologyschool.com. You can also support the podcast through my page on Patreon at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. And that's going to be one of the main things that I focus on in the coming year is just continuing to expand and improve what we're doing here on the podcast as we move into what, like episode 400? I think we're up to episode 380s at this point. So we're about to celebrate a big milestone here. All right, guys, I think that is it for this episode of the podcast and for our forecast for 2023. So thanks. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks to our live audience of patrons that joined us for the live recording. I appreciate you and thanks for your support. Um, and that's it for this forecast for 2023. So thanks everyone for watching and we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. 
You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. I also recently published a new translation of the anthology of the 2nd century astrologer Vedius Valens, which is one of the most important sources for understanding the practice of ancient astrology. You can find that by searching for Vedius Valens the Anthology on Amazon or other online book retailers. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. I also recently launched a new course there called the Birth Time Rectification Course, where I teach students how to figure out your birth time using astrology when the birth time is either unknown or uncertain. You can find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Each year, the podcast releases a set of astrology calendar posters for the coming year, and we've just released our 2023 Planetary Alignments and Planetary Movements posters, which are now available on our website at theastrologypodcast.com store. There you can also pick up our 2023 Electional Astrology Report, where Lisa Scheim and I went through the next 12 months and we picked out the single most auspicious date for each month using the principles of electional astrology. You can get that at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2023 report. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. Finally, thanks also to the Northwest Astrology Conference, which is happening May 25th through the 29th, 2023, just outside of Seattle. This year's conference is going to be a hybrid conference where you can either attend online or in person. Find out more information at norwac.net.